podcast this week, we have a chat with Shaka King, director of Judas and the Black Messiah. And we're joined by the guy who gives geeks a bad name. What with his movie star looks, fame, fortune, riches, six pack and ultra deep knowledge of Dungeons and Dragons. It's Joe Manganello, star of Arch Enemy. Plus the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that only just found out that MasterChef is back on our screens. There's never a TV podcast around to tell you this stuff when you really need one, is there? Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Emperor Podcast. This week, I'm joined by just two colleagues of such lethal cunning, our geek queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. Hello, Helen O'Hara. How are you? I am well, thank you. I have taken up a new hobby this week. I've been embroidering and, uh, you know, it's been very soothing in a week that hasn't been. Uh, And is this this a new hobby in case of, you know, has it has it supplanted just, I don't know, waiting for this the sweet embrace of death? Yeah, I was screaming into the void the past few weeks, but now I embroider. (laughs) So that's been great. Uh, Um, What are you embroidering? So I embroider. I'll show you a picture. Um, I, I cheated and I got someone else to send me an embroidery kit. And it's mm-hmm. like a hand, like a springtime goddess, sprinkling spring flowers oh, through the air. Isn't that nice? Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's nice. That's good. That's good. That's very, very good. Excellent. Well, well done. Well Thank done you. on the old embroidering. I've also been on Radio 4, so I may be the most civilised person in the country this week. It's wow. possible. Mm. And you live near Waitrose. I know. You couldn't get any more middle class, quite <laughs> oh, frankly. Oh my God. This is huge. How's the book coming? <laughs> Uh, uh, good. Yeah, I think so. Finished, People right? seem to like it. I hope so. <laughs> you know, because it's been published, and if I left that sort of yeah. hanging word on the last page, people are going to be angry. You should have done just as a cliffhanger. Yeah, <laughs> and really, the solution to women in Hollywood achieving <laughs> reality exa- equality <laughs> is dot dot dot. Oh my god! Oh now you got to buy the second book. Oh <gasps> shit! I should have done a cliffhanger. I think oh, I've well. asked you this before, but I, I'm I'm going to ask you it again. Is there a Jack Reacher in your book? Let's say yes. Yes. Okay. Fully on board. Five stars in for Women versus Hollywood, the <laughs> fall and rise of Jack Reacher uh, in film. And <laughs> and we're also joined this week by great big fucking nerd, James Dyer. How did it come to this? How did I go from nerd emperor to great big fucking nerd? Because I misspoke and I laughed and it made me laugh and I liked it so I kept it. That's how it works. This is just like being at school again. You say one wrong thing or one bad thing happens and this shit fucking follows you to the sixth form. It's unbelievable. Shut up, mum. I mean, miss. I mean, mum. I mean, missy, mum. Oh, God. That's it. That's your life now for the next five years. Great yep. big fucking nerd. Pretty much. Pretty much. How are you, Jimbo? Any books? You right now? Anything at the moment? What's happening? I, I, it's funny you should ask that, but as uh, as Lee Child's other brother, I am, of course, writing the next instalment in the Jack Reacher series, so you can look forward to that coming out in the September. The Killing Ceiling. Yes, that's exactly it. How big are his hands in this one? Huge, absolutely huge. He's, he's now got 18 different types of shower. It's incredible. Mm. Are they the size of dinner plates, supermarket turkeys, or supermarket hams? Because he can't quite seem to make up his mind. Yeah, JCB tyres this time around. Wow. Really? Scything, there's a scything elbow on every single page. <laughs> Let's move on to the three-fact structure. Yes, there's only three of us this week, and technically there's only two of you. But go on, hit me with facts. What Does that you mean you have to come up with a fact to keep it in keeping with the name? But then how would that 
That, no, that retains the would... three-fat structure. Otherwise, it's just a two-fat structure, and mm. everyone knows drama doesn't work that way. Yeah, exactly. I can Famously. do. There, there are many, many plays that have just two acts, and there are some plays that have just one That's act. True. Some oh, plays the have four acts, and other plays have five acts. And that <laughs> is my fact for this week. Now, <laughs> that was Helen. terrible. That was terrible. Uh, I will say, though, I love a one-act play. In the before times, when you heard it was a one-act play, and you'd be home by nine o'clock. Oh, just the dream. <laughs> Anywho, Anywho, I... I'm here today to talk to you about Bambi. Bambi, of course, the uh, Walt Disney classic film, which uh, last year they announced that they were planning to do a quote-unquote live-action remake of, in the style of the live-action Lion King that we already had, which is 100% animated apart from one frame. Is this the one that got interrupted when they accidentally killed Bambi and ended up serving at uh, craft services? But the good news is he was delicious. Yeah, he was venison. delicious. Yeah, really delicious. Um, but my fact is this: that will but none not of these be... things is my fact. Hey, that's my line. <laughs> my fact is this: this will not be, if indeed it happens, the first quote-unquote live-action Bambi. Bambi has previously appeared in live-action in a Disney film before. Wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Wait, wait a second. <laughs> ben did this fact a few weeks ago. What? Ben did, did this fact a few weeks ago. You were in the room. Uh, you were wearing your blue jumper. I just heard it on his podcast, so I was going to do it. Oh my God. Oh my God. So hang on. That's right, I have so a backup fact. Ben ripped off his fact for his podcast from, from his our podcast. podcast. Yep. And then you ripped off the fact that he ripped off from our podcast for his podcast and you ripped off from his podcast for this podcast. We have disappeared eating our own tail. Oh my word. I have a backup fact though if you want it. Bambi Palooza. It's a bam it's a Bambi apocalypse. I don't remember that. Yeah, it's something. It was some. There was a there was a live action thing, and Bambi was in it. And there was like a like a deer that looked like Bambi, and someone said, "That's Bambi." You remember him from the that, 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 that. Oh, okay. I have no recollection. Sorry, again. Fact. I've got another fact. Well, no, no, let's not start again. Let's not gloss over the fact that you're <laughs> uh, a fact recycler. But by I'm allowed to learn facts from other podcasts. That's just fact. James I did feel it the other in week. No position to criticize at this <laughs> exactly. point. Exactly. <laughs> and listen. I don't pay much attention to this section either, so I don't know who's winning, who's losing, but I do know that that fact was on a few weeks ago. Ben did it. That's amazing. Yeah, Ben did huh. it. I don't think he won, though. I think he, um, he, well, maybe he did win. It's a good I don't fact. Know. I can't he should have won. It's a terrible fact. It's a really good fact. <laughs> anyway, here's my backup fact. Backup fact. Right. Okay. Um, the Proud Boys. You've heard of the Proud Boys? Uh, sadly, sure. yes. Yes. Unfortunately so. Um, they were... <laughs> Named after, <laughs> they were named after a song cut from the 1992 Disney film Aladdin. What? <laughs> Not kidding. What? There's an what? Alan Menken Please. song, yep, called Proud There's of Your Boy. There's a white supremacy song in Aladdin. No, it's not a white supremacist song. The song basically has Aladdin apologizing to his mother for being a bad son and promising to make her proud. So this was interpreted by the peop the bad people, as this being Aladdin apologizing for being a boy. Wow. And therefore that became a, a a sort of running joke on this podcast and became the name of the Proud Boys. That's wild. Helen may have already won, Jimbo, but go on. Well, my fact this week is particularly special because oh God. within it the worlds of Empire and Pilot TV collide no. to spectacular effect. Because Helen, my fact you may want to start embroidering really quickly. <laughs> concerns the galaxy far, far away, specifically the Alderaan system and mm -hmm. one Senator Bail Organa, adoptive 
father of Princess Leia Organa, uh, mm-hmm. and depicted in the prequels by one Jimmy Smith, a.k.a. President Matthew Santos from the West Wing. However, that is not my fact. My fact oh. is that it was not always thus, which, of course, you already know because you presumably watch Graham Norton's. But what I'm going to say is anyone who has taken the time to trawl the extras on the Phantom Menace Blu-ray or, indeed, who watched Graham Norton last week, let's be honest, will know that Jimmy Smith, who took on the role of Bail Organa in Sack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, was not, he was not the original choice. He was not the original Bail Organa. So the original Bail Organa was none other than Detective Superintendent Ted Hastings of AC-12. Ted fucking Hastings, a name which of course means fuck all to either of you because neither of you watch Line of Duty. But Mm -hmm. anyone who doesn't watch Line of Duty, we of course refer to uh, his honour, the magnificent Adrian Dunbar. So Adrian Dunbar was cast back in 1999. He has one line in The Phantom Menace, which ended up on the cutting room floor. So when Queen Amidala calls for a vote of no confidence in Chancellor Valorum's leadership, we originally used to cut straight to the Alderaan box, where Ted stands up (laughs) and, for the DIR, clearly states that Alderaan seconds the vote of no confidence in Chancellor Valorum, fella, because Alderaan didn't float up the lagoon in a bubble. Now, for Alderaan reasons. For all the wrong reasons. You know, apparently, apparently, as done as Dunbar has it, as he said on Graham Norton, after performing that line during rehearsals, fellow Northern Irish countryman Liam Neeson sidled up to him and said that that was the worst American accent he had ever heard, at which point, <laughs> wow. irony promptly keeled over and died. Um, <laughs> well, do you think that Big Liam was trying to do an American accent in that, in that movie? It's fucking hard he to wasn't. say, isn't it? He really wasn't. But, to be fair, neither is. I mean, Dunbar, you could go either way. He just he sounds was, like Ted Hastings. He was going full Northern Irish, was Big Liam. Anakin! No! Anakin! I say no to the Sith! That's what he was doing. Granites will do fine! <laughs> so they will. <laughs> but yeah, so my oh fact for you is that Ted Hastings was once Princess Leia's adopted dad, which we can only hope is one of the main plot lines in Line of Duty Series 6, which airs on BBC One from Sunday, the 21st of March, and which we review in full oh on God. the Pilot TV podcast this Monday. <sighs> You know, Before like he missed, he missed your cue in the opening, Chris, and I thought maybe... <laughs> I know, maybe. he wasn't listening, was he? Yeah, I know he wasn't listening, but I thought maybe it was a sign of growth, and it, and it obviously Why, wasn't. What, were you two talking about something TV-related, and I, I missed it? Yeah, yep. 100%. You were just mm-hmm. busy texting or something. No, I, I wasn't. Know. Yeah, I was, I was answering email. I wasn't listening at all. Yeah. Sorry. We realised immediately when you didn't pipe up to mention the Pilot TV podcast. Not that you would be talking about MasterChef on the Pilot TV podcast, you know, what with it being good and stuff. You say that, but I was forced to discuss Married at First Sight Australia on last week's uh, oh. TV podcast. Oh, that's a phenomenon. Everyone's been talking Sounds about like that. Sounds like a real must-listen. Terry made me watch it as part of a Faustian pact so that I could get her to watch the first episode of the newsroom. So she made me watch the finale of Married at First oh, Sight no. Australia. Uh, oh, no. Why? Oh, I assume no. you will now be watching the finale of uh, The Masked Singer US edition. Why is Ted Hastings on the Mars Singer, Helen? No, better than that. Better than that. So there was a there was a a mysterious figure encased in a snail costume, and who could this be? And there were many, many guesses. I guess who could it be? Who could it be? be? Who was it? And then it turned out to be Kermit the Frog. So they opened the snail costume, Mm -hmm. and Kermit the Frog emerged. Brains exploded all over the world. Not quite as good as Ted Hastings. Um, I'm guessing nobody guessed it was Kermit the Frog because he's gone from obviously the Jim Henson voice for Kermit and then Steve Whitmire over the last few years who was, you know, kind of like, there's magic in the air this evening, but, you know, kind of recognisably Kermit the Frog. But then they recast the voice of Kermit the Frog and he sounds roughly like this, hey, what's going on, everybody? Kermit the Frog here. And it doesn't sound anything like Kermit should sound. And so I'm guessing that nobody actually 
I guess not. I, I'll be honest, I didn't Singer. watch The Masked Singer, but I hear, you know. But both, both Masked Singer and Line of Duty are about trying to unmask people, aren't they, James? That's <gasps> it. Taking off your balaclavas. Oh. Well, that wasn't that wasn't that wasn't that was, an, an ill ill thought out Northern Irish reference. That wasn't that wasn't playing the room, was it? Well, that wasn't playing the room. As a legitimate political party, uh, <laughs> there's always a bigger fish. Sure, there is. <laughs> there's hate crimes going on over here, is what they are. Anakin, no. <laughs> Qui Gon's Nobel end. Yeah, <laughs> Qui Gon is no bell end. Yes. Yeah, Qui Gon is no bell end. Although the rumors are true, Qui Gon's bell end. Oh is my a, god. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, oh my word, what's happening? Oh God, yeah, I forgot we were doing that section. Uh, right, so James, what's your fact that Adrian Dunbar was originally cast as Bail Organa in The Phantom Menace and then was recast as Jimmy Smits? I mean, pretty much, yeah. Okay. You know, if I presented facts like that, we'd get through the shit a lot quicker. <laughs> a lot quicker, James, yes. Yeah, I might give that right. a go next week. <laughs> no preamble, no showmanship, just there's a fact, boom, and out. <laughs> None of these things is my fact. Oh, wait, that was my fact. Um, all right, Helen, I can't remember what your fact was. It was good, wasn't it? Something about the Proud Boys. Boys. Oh, yeah. So that's a good fact. That's a good fact. That's a good fact. But uh, like the Donald Trump adjacent one from a few weeks ago, I'm not sure if I can reward the uh. Proud Boys, even tangentially. Uh, so this week's winner, much as it pains me to say it, is me with my incredible some plays of one act some plays of two acts some plays of three acts no it's uh it's jimbo this week i think well thank well you done. i well should done, i should point out i don't watch graham norton so thank you to kenny boyd for telling me that that was on graham norton so that i could watch him oh i mean i feel it important to reward the people who tip me off to my facts so that more people will send me facts meaning i have to do less work <laughs> you're, you're like the bernie madoff of facts it's like an endless ponzi scheme of yeah. facts. <laughs> if you send me one fact four people will send you facts in the next three weeks where's james he's made off with all those facts uh right there we go james wins this week three fact structure there is Hi, much rejoicing in the streets of the nation <laughs> time now then to barrel straight into the listener question section and jimbo i don't know whether you planned your fact in order to tie it into this week's question, I suspect you didn't. Yes, Chris, I absolutely did yes. that completely. Yes, I thought as much as you lie and you sign yourself to lies. Uh, this question comes from at E underscore boiler. E underscore boiler. What's the best bit of recasting of a role for sequels or TV shows? Now, just to keep this at a manageable length, I'm going to banish TV shows from this equation. Because um, the right answer is actually, of course, Becky. From Roseanne. Yeah, Becky's was the most surreal one because it became a timeshare role with them both sort of alternating in it, and that just blows my mind. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's weird, that isn't it? Mm. Very weird. That's the weirdest bit of recasting in history. But yeah, I'm sure we've talked about this a little bit in the podcast before. But what's the best bit of recasting of a role for sequels? So as Jimbo inadvertently, in his own bumbling way, uh, accidentally <laughs> set this up by talking about how Adrian Dunbar was recast within Star Wars to become Jimmy Smith's. I mean, obviously, there are numerous examples of this across franchises and reinventions and, and different iterations of stuff. We've got all sorts of Draculeers, we've got all sorts of Bonds, all sorts of Catwomen and Batman and Superman and Jack Ryans and the like and Jesuses. Jesus is coming out of our ears, quite frankly. But um, so we're going to try and keep this with to within franchises. So it's like the franchise continues on, but this one character changes. Yes. So not yes. James Bond. In that sense, like you know, yes, yeah. Okay. Although, although Bond is always interesting, isn't it? In that, not really. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yes, one, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. 
No, but Bond is Bond is is sometimes interesting, Helen. I think you'll agree. Oh, okay. Uh, in that there are actors who straddle different Bond eras. Uh, pretty much everybody who played M yeah. over the years, um, Desmond Llewellyn as Q, Lewis Maxwell as Miss Moneypenny. So the likes of uh, Robert Brown, etc. They all span numerous different Bonds. And the, the one that's the odd one out for me is Judy Dench as M, because the recasting of Daniel Craig, that's a reboot, and that's a hard reboot. So there's a you know ultimately a different Q, there's ultimately a different money penny, there's ultimately a different M, but it's the same M from the Pierce Brosnan era. So that's never quite made one hundred percent sense to me. Uh, Helen hating on Bond. Helen, when are you going to learn that becoming a parody of your podcast caricature is neither big nor clever? <laughs> the answer to this is, of course, Thanos. Now, let's talk about oh, the fact oh, that Damien Poitier obviously played Thanos in the end credit sequences, but was yes, vastly superseded when Josh Brolin took over as the mighty Thanos, a.k.a. the real hero of the MCU. James, a don't make me destroy performance. you. performance. I think we can all agree. It is a towering performance. As a mm-hmm. dickhead... Oh, anyway. <laughs> there we go. There we go. It's all happening. It's all uh, happening. But, I mean, there's so many MCU ones, aren't there? Like yeah. Don Cheadle is definitely a better War Machine. Mark Ruffalo is unarguably a mm-hmm. better Hulk. Uh, yeah, it's Ruffalo out of the MCU for me, uh, I have yeah. to say. Although very closely followed by Cheadle. I would put in a good word, I think, for Marty McFly. Maybe? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does it kind of they're recast during shooting and we only ever see... There's different versions of this. There, there yeah. are different versions of this. There are people who, um, I think as long as they've played them at some point, because there, there are examples all the way through film history of people being recast or replaced just before shooting begins. So I learned just before we started recording today, for example, that John Cleese was originally cast to play the Anthony Hopkins role in The Remains of the Day. And then oh. he left, he left, not, I'm not sure if it was the 11th hour, but certainly the 10th hour. Then you got your Tom Selleck being replaced, of course, by Harrison Ford for Indiana Jones. So that's that's one example of the genre. Was Selleck like on set? No, but that's what I'm saying. Right. So these these guys were replaced before before a camera even rolled, before there was even a, a single foot of film in the camera. This isn't some recasting so much as it is just casting. That's casting. Precisely, yeah. that's what I'm saying. That's the, yeah. the, that's something different. Okay. okay. Then you oh, have- oh, oh, so where do we stand on Michael Bean sort of replacing James Remar as? This is what I'm talking about. There are examples in movie history, of course, of people being recast after the cameras have started rolling. Uh, One of which, as Helen's uh, already said, is Eric Stoll's being replaced very famously by Michael J. Fox about the future. Uh, Jimbo, I think you've hit upon one that's perhaps less known. Tell us about that. Yeah, so James Remar was obviously playing Hicks initially. He went through the boot camp. They shot a number of scenes. He left the film and uh, and Michael Bean was drafted in, obviously having worked with Cameron before on Terminator, was drafted in to fill that role. And it worked out really well. His armour mm-hmm. had been pre-decorated by Remar and he didn't go through the boot camp, so he hadn't really bonded with the other actors. But I think that quite works in a role because Higgs is a bit of a loner and he always feels slightly out of step with the other Marines. Yeah. And he's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But Remar's in some of the shots from behind. You don't see yes. in front of him, but he's in yes. some of that. the... He is in some of the shots. Uh, but Higgs, yeah, uh, Michael Bean's fantastic in that role. The other great one of these is uh, Viggo Mortensen, obviously in Lord of the Rings. Mm. Yeah, Stuart so, Townsend. Yeah. yeah. So the camera, I think, had rolled or just started rolling. It was a couple of weeks in, I think, that they that they changed their mind on Aragorn. But um, but yeah. Because he was far too young, wasn't he? Yeah, basically that. Nobody thought he was bad. They just thought he, no. he just didn't he was have Aragorn, the, the weight. Then he was Aragorn. 
Harsh. Wow. Which would be confusing because that's a place in Spain and they were in New Zealand. So like nobody knew where to go and the cameras were in the wrong place. Oh, it was very just awful. It's when it took them five takes to open a door that they realized, you know what? We need someone who can just really push this motherfucker open with both arms and just stride in like he owns a place. No one has ever opened a door better. Oh, That's how I open all doors, by the way. (laughs) Every door I open like that. I even wear a wig so I can just swing in front of my face in the same way. I open all doors, electronic doors, by waving my hand at them, like I'm a Jedi or Magneto. (laughs) Everyone does it. Don't deny it. That's fair. Yeah. Or like an airplane too, where you go, (laughs) you hiss at the door first before it opens. I don't understand this reference to a comedy. Oh, of course you don't. It's a reference to Star Trek though, so, (laughs) (laughs) Helen, tell people more about Eric Stoltz. Um, Eric Stoltz was... Uh, everybody agreed a very good actor. They were thrilled to get him initially for Back to the Future. They they thought he'd be great. But he had, I think, and again, people have talked about this, he had trouble getting the kind of lightness of tone and he was kind of playing it more for drama than I think they wanted. And it wasn't quite working. They couldn't quite get Marty McFly to feel like the stakes were high and they were real, but also, you know, there's a, there's a lightness of touch there. So... I think, I believe their first choice had been Michael J. Fox, but he was committed to the sitcom Family Ties and they didn't think he'd be free and able to do it, which is why they'd gone with Stoltz. Um, And they basically went back to him and were like, please, please find a way. And for at least a large portion of the shoot, he was essentially filming Family Ties all day and Mm -hmm. filming Back to the Future all night. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was... A horrific, horrific schedule, the likes of which a few actors have ever had to endure. But it paid off because it's fucking brilliant. It is. It was. It would have been slightly depressing with the results in it. <laughs> I feel. But I, I discovered this fairly recently as well hmm. that they didn't reshoot everything because I thought whenever they they hired Michael J. Fox, they would just go back and reshoot everything. But a lot of his scenes, uh, especially in the early days, are just uh, reaction shots of him. The cameras on him, and then it's stuff that they shot with Eric Stoltz. Right. So, I mean, that's that's an even more wow. Herculean task than that they managed to make that stuff blend so seamlessly. It's incredible. He didn't meet Christopher Lloyd until Back to Future Three. <laughs> it's so weird. He just he just skipped two <laughs> straight to three. The chemistry, despite that, is phenomenal. <laughs> it's wow, it's really, really, really weird. Lightning in the bottle. But yeah, that's that's a very, very good one. And uh, Dumbledore is a big one. Dumbledore is a big one. Dumbledore, and that's not, yes. That's not a case of someone being replaced halfway through a film. That's mm. obviously Richard Harris passed away at, after Chamber of Secrets. Yeah. And they recast him. They hadn't started, had they, on? I believe not. I believe he died between, between films. Um, and Michael Gambon came in for, yeah, Prisoner of Azkaban. Um, mm. And, like, is, is good and has. He's a different Dumbledore. He's a little bit more. Uh, down to earth or something, you know, there, there's there's something quite ethereal almost about Richard Harris, maybe just because he was old and frail and and you could sense it, I think, on screen sometimes. So he seemed mm. almost otherworldly in a way that Gambon didn't always. But they blend together remarkably well. And because it's a kind of a magical world, you almost don't notice. You're almost like, yeah, I mean, this this guy's changed face and shape and height. Sure, <laughs> that that seems like a thing that would happen. Yeah. We mentioned Anthony Hopkins. Obviously, Hannibal Lecter is a great bit of recasting, isn't it? From Brian. I mean, I love Brian Cox. Brian Cox is the man, but I mean, Anthony Hopkins is the definitive Lecter. Mm. 
a lot of recasting in that series though as well you've got julianne moore stepping in for jodie foster which didn't work so well for me i'm not i love i love hopkins as lecter but i'm not sure i leap on the definitive lecture train as readily as you did oh uh, really the yeah. academy would beg to differ well the academy don't tend to give out awards to <laughs> tv shows uh, i don't know if you've noticed that on the pilot tv podcast oh so you'd you put you put the mads the mads lecture above the Hopkins no lecture. not above but i think it's just as good but i'm also yeah, well, i also think that i also yes, think that um the cox one is also cox great. is fantastic yeah. in michael mann's manhunter did you know that he is uh that lecture is spelled completely differently yes in that indeed Indeed. Was L E K T O R? L E C K T O R, I think, uh, in that. And um, I spoke to Brian Cox a while ago, a few months ago, actually, about how he got that role. And um, I think Brian Dennehy was very instrumental in getting him that role. Mm. That they were working together in a play. And Brian Dennehy had been approached by Michael Mann about doing something in Manhunter. And he went, No, 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 no. You want this guy. You want the guy I'm acting with at the moment. You know, come along and see him. And so um, he sent. He came along with the casting oh, director, nice. and uh, she said, "You know, she was terrified by what he was doing in the play, which is weird because <laughs> it was a panto." <laughs> and that's how Hollywood began its love affair with Cox. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm. I was trying to think of um, women uh, who have been well recast. Oh, oh, Rachel Dawes. No. Yeah, Rachel Dawes. I guess. I mean, I don't. I feel like that's on a par, and and there's so little to that role that I yeah, almost. that's fair. It's it's really hard to to get involved with either of them. Uh, I mean, Evelyn in the Mummy movies. You know, Maria Bello usually oh, fantastic. God, but, yeah. But there was no replacing the chemistry that that no. Fraser and Weiss had originally in those films. And I will. I, the, the Mummy three to me is just not canon. I'm sorry. What about Rusty and Audrey Griswold? <laughs> Oh, that's oh. a good call. Because that's isn't that Juliette Lewis and Johnny Galecki by the time he gets to Christmas vacation, isn't it? Oh, Jimbo. Oh, oh Jimbo. Jimbo. What have you done? What have you what? done? <laughs> what? Well, it, no, it just so happens that, you know, this is, I'm sure I've talked about this in the podcast. This is this is one of my big things, you know, that, so it, there are five vacation movies and in every single yeah. vacation movie, Rusty and Audrey are played by different people. Yeah. Every but, single mm-hmm. one. In Christmas, it's Juliette Lewis, isn't it? Yes. And Johnny yes. It's Juliette yeah. Lewis and Johnny Galecki. Anthony Michael Hall and Dana Barron are in National Lampoon's Vacation, which came out in 1983. National Lampoon's European Vacation, which came out two years later. Uh, it is Dana Hill and Jason Lively. And then in Christmas Vacation, it is, of course, Johnny Galecki and Juliette Lewis. In Vegas Vacation, it's Ethan Embry and Marisol Nichols. That's the name that will always elude me. Marisol Nichols. And then in Vacation, it's Leslie Mann and Ed Helms. So there you go. Okay. There you go. Um, I'm just going to mention a couple of other quick ones here. Uh, there you know, the, the loads of X-Men movies have done this just by the sheer wacky Keystone Cops nature of the, the way that franchise was made. So there are loads of recastings in that. Colossus, Jubilee, Sabretooth who was Tyler Mayne initially and then shrunk by about a foot and a half to be played by Liev Schreiber in X-Men Origins Wolverine. He's still tall. I mean... He's, you know, he's still... You know, I've stood next to Liev Schreiber. He's a, he's a tall drink of water, but Tyler Mayne is the size yeah. of, you know, two men. The state of New Jersey, yeah. I yes, so. I think so. So that's one. Uh, in the MCU, one we didn't mention, and uh, my wife, when he discovered this the other week, when I told her that uh, Hugo Weaving did not mm. come back as a Red Skull in Infinity yeah. War and Endgame. That is actually mm. CG with voice of Bross Marquand, who plays Aaron on The Walking Dead and is a brilliant, brilliant impressionist. Mm. And we also forgot Fandral, who I'm sure we all 
remember instantly was originally oh, yeah. played by Josh Dallas and yes. then was replaced by Zachary Levy. Yes. There's a couple of other ones as well. Evan Peters isn't in Kick-Ass 2, uh, which makes his own recasting of a, of a popular role recently. I'm not going to say what, just in case people still have somehow haven't seen the show in question, uh, but it makes it even more meta. He was replaced by Augustus Prue on Kick-Ass 2. And uh, you were asking about uh, you were asking about women, Helen. Mm-hmm. I think, of course, the one we're immediately thinking of is Piper Parabo replacing Rada Mitchell in Angel Has Fallen in the pivotal role <laughs> of, of I believe the character's name is Mike Banning's wife. <laughs> yes, I think that Anne, I want to say Anne, but I really can't justify Anne that. Anne Banning? Um, yeah, you're right. That's probably where it's coming from. That doesn't sound good, does yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, most most of the most of the female ones recast are appalling roles to begin with. I mean, Jennifer in in Back to the Future was also mm-hmm. recast, of course, between yes. films. Claudia Wells to Elizabeth Shue. Um, mm-hmm. uh, who's the other? Rachel the Vampire. I think it was Rachel. No, Victoria. Rachel! Victoria the Vampire in mm-hmm. the Twilight yes. movies, who went from Rachel from Lefebvre, Lefebvre to Brian. To- Dallas yeah. Howard. Brian Bryce Dallas Howard. Brian Dallas, Dallas Howard. Unexpected <laughs> This is this is going well today. I'll tell you. This is this is really something. Embroidering has stolen your brain. <laughs> I mean there wasn't much left there to steal, so that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna mention one last one before to wrap this up, and it's it's a different kind of recasting. And again, this isn't exhaustive, it's not definitive. If you have other examples, do send them in to us and call us idiots on Twitter all week long. That's always fun. But um, Susanna York mm-hmm. in Superman 2. So she plays Lara, who is, of course, Superman's mum. But she really wasn't in Superman 2 initially. So she was brought in to do everything that Marlon Brando was meant to do as Jor-El. But Marlon Brando quit Superman 2 whenever the producers fired Dick Donner. And so he quit in protest at this and didn't come back. And so they hastily rewrote everything, gave all his lines, all his big exposition scenes to Susanna York instead. Gene Hackman also didn't come back out of solidarity with Dick Donner. And they had to hastily reshoot some stuff and redub some stuff. And talking about, you know, there are numerous scenes in Superman 2 that once Richard Lester took over, uh, where you'll see Lex Luthor's back, and that's not Gene Hackman, or he'll have lines where you can't see Lex Luthor's mouth moving. And that is a very, very good Gene Hackman sound alike. Mm. So there you go. I have another one, which I've oh. forgotten to mention. Mm-hmm. Ian McDiarmid, obviously as Emperor Palpatine, yeah, yeah. replacing, yes. and people always say replaces Clive Revel, but he doesn't replace Clive Revel. He replaces Marjorie <laughs> Eaton because um, Clive Revel's the voice of the original Palpatine, mm-hmm. but not the face of the original Palpatine. That's Marjorie Eaton with some chimpanzee eyes superimposed over her own eyes. But uh, yeah, no, of course, no longer canon, but canon because on the canon, you know, canon, 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 and on. No, it's now it's canon. It is indeed now cut off because uh, Ian McDermott has been retconned in and Marjorie's performance is no more. Oh, such a shame. Such a shame. If you want to have your question read out on the Empire podcast, you can get in touch with us via a number of methods, except you can't really. There's only one method at the moment, which is Twitter. You can slide into my DMs. I'm at Chris Hewitt, or you can just reply to any of my tweets. <laughs> if Once you stop laughing, of course, because my tweets are hilarious. Uh, or you can wait for a panicked shout out every now and again. Time now for the first of this week's two guests. 
Jimbo, I'm looking at your room now. You've got a pretty geeky room going on there. I've got a pretty geeky room going on here. Helen, you've got some Pixar stuff in your walls. Fairly geeky. We are all fairly geeky, but we're all pale in comparison in so many, so many ways. So many ways. To this week's first guest, who is Joe Manganello. Uh, he is the star and producer of Arch Enemy, uh, which is now available on VOD. And he plays a man called Max Fist. Oh, yes, Max yes. Fist, indeed. And uh, who is a homeless person who claims to be a superhero from another dimension who strikes up a friendship with a young kid and uh, they get entangled with drug dealers. Uh, it's directed by Adam Egypt Mortimer and it is one of the the first films that Manganello has produced. You'll know him, of course, from over the years from the likes of Spider-Man, the Raimi Spider-Man, where he played Flash Thompson, True Blood, where he played big old hunky McWolfman, all the way to, you'll see him next week in the Snyder Cut of Justice League as Deathstroke. Uh, as well. And he is super, super geeky, despite looking like he's been hewn from a mountain and is some sort of Greek god come to life. He is super, super nerdy and uh, is well known for running a weekly Dungeons and Dragons game in LA with some big, big names, including Vince Fawn and uh, D.B. Wise, the former co-showrunner of Game of Thrones. So that's kind of where we started and we uh, ended up talking about Arch Enemy and some other stuff as well. So here we go, me talking to Joe Manganello. Do please enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the star and producer of Arch Enemy, Mr. Joe Manganello. How are you, sir? I'm well, thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, indeed, well, it's nice to be here. But this is your man cave. I mean, you haven't. <laughs> this is. I've I've seen this in numerous interviews in the in uh, during the pandemic. So well, there's the dungeon. Yeah, I'm in I'm in my office right now. Okay, uh, but there there actually is a there was a dungeon that I built uh, built out uh, in the basement. But no, this is my this is my home office. So right behind me is my. That's a painting that I had commissioned of my wolf from True Blood. That's the watercolor painting that was the original cover of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles role-playing game. That was, that was a watercolor painted by Kevin Eastman in 1985. He came over to my house to see it because he realized I had it, couldn't believe it. He drove up from San Diego to come see the painting. Wow. And he said that that was the first time the turtles were ever painted in color. Anyway, fun piece of trivia. <laughs> uh, there's my sideshow Deathstroke that Joel McHale, my buddy Joel McHale gave me. And, uh, you know, if we kind of scroll around the room, there's all kinds of fun. Axel Rose's microphone from Guns N' Roses only show at the Apollo Theater in Harlem. Uh, you know, uh, Manny Pacquiao and... Uh, uh, Marquez, uh, I have a boxing. Anyway, there's all kinds of fun stuff. In here, but, yeah, uh, that's that's amazing. You put me to shame because you know one of the things during the pandemic, I've done a lot of interviews from my from my office here at my, at my home in London. You know, and I've, I'm I'm okay when it comes to the geeky stuff, Joe. But I've got you know I've got some stuff behind me. I've got an Evil Dead Two board game, which I'm very very proud of. Uh, but then, my God, I mean, you've got me. You've, you've, <laughs> Just put me in the shade immediately. It's disgraceful. I've got fun. I've got fun stuff. I got some fun stuff on here. <laughs> it's not too bad. Let me see what else I got here. I've got uh, this. You'll this won't beat you at all. But I've got a Galactus Funko Pop. Does that work? Is that Ooh, okay? I love that. I, Galactus <laughs> was Galactus was always such an interesting character in the comics. Uh, the fact that he, you know, he, he had this backstory written out. You know. Um, yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I love Galactus. Galactus is my. Uh, you know, uh, I, I've got. 
numerous collectors have got a big one, the 19 inch collectors from Comic Con a few years ago, knocking over there. But again, nothing compared to what you got. This is this is incredible, and this isn't even your dungeon. So I bow down, no, sir. I bow down. I actually have my Deathstroke mask from uh, Justice League, the end credit scene. Um, I, I I stuck it in my bag on the way out of the shoot <laughs> and went back through customs all the way to <laughs> and went through airport security and, and customs with this this deathstroke mask that I have over there. And I, I don't think anybody knows that I I have it other than uh, one of the wardrobe people. Or as you didn't get like a panicked email going or phone calls going, <laughs> Joe, have you seen the masks? Someone has walked yeah, out with the mask. Yeah, we need the mask. The mask. It, yeah, no, it's here. I have it. Oh, that's amazing. And well, then also, I have to say thank you for doing this on a Friday because I know Friday is a big day for you. Uh, is is this a, is today a big a big D and D day for you? Uh, yeah, I usually run my my weekly game on Fridays. Uh, we are not on tonight, so I've had a, I've actually have a lot of work stuff to do, so I, I haven't been able to properly prep uh, an epic adventure. So yeah, no, I had like you know, job stuff to do. Okay. You, you, you've, you've got a week off. This, this is good. This is good. What, what sort of prep does that normally involve for you? Well, uh, when we were in person, I would build out all the maps. So whatever dungeon they were going through, I would actually build those on trays and hide them so that, you know, depending on where they went in the dungeon, if they went left or went right, I had all of the rooms already assembled. Uh, mm. Made out of this stuff called Dwarven Forge. Okay, Dwarven Forge is this company. They make um, you know castle terrain, dungeon terrain, caverns, light up caverns. You flip a switch and all the crystals in the cave light up. They they make uh, you know swamps and mountains. Like you can build anything your brain comes up with. You can you can build this stuff. And I will build like you know sometimes like I took a whole. Of a home theater here, yeah, and I, I I needed I needed a whole full room, so I moved into the the home theater at one point and built out this entire like camp uh, inside of there. And of course, you know every square, every one inch square is five feet of movement, so it all it all works within the rules of the game. So it was you know, uh, but but um, so so the prep is the prep is is writing. I mean, it's it's like show running a show basically. Yeah. Um, you got to figure out where the plot's going to go next. Um, then you have to really think about what you think your players are going to do because they can do anything that they want. It's an open sandbox with no limits. So you have to be prepared for whatever direction they're going to go, wherever they fancy, wherever they, you know, uh, you, you got to be ready for that. You got to be ready to pivot. But, but at the same time, you're laying down the tracks of where you think the story would go and trying to add elements, characters. So I'm, I'm writing speeches, I'm writing dialogue, um, creating characters, figuring out where the story's going to go, you know, what's the most epic or badass way, place to take the story, while also writing mythology, wow. you know, characters have dreams, what's in the dreams, you know, so there's, there's, there's just a lot. There's a lot. So is this, is this, um, this side of, uh, of, of you as, a, as a, a creative dungeon master, is, is that translating to your movie career as well because obviously you produced Arch Enemy also and I'm just wondering if you've been bashing away some scripts whether there, there, there's a whole ton of scripts in the in the drawer yeah it has a lot to do with all of that you know in fact I, I, I bumped into John Favreau at one point who grew up playing D&D &D. Mm. and uh, he and I were talking about it and he said yeah that's um, 
that's basically where I come from writing the Mandalorian. You know, I'm, I'm creating this whole adventure for all of these characters and mapping it out. And it's, it's the same thing. So when you get into producing, you get into writing, you get into show running, especially, uh, then, then those are all the same skills. You know, Dan Weiss, Game of Thrones plays in my group. He, he agrees 100%. And uh, I have to ask one one other thing about uh, your group as well. Uh, I saw an interview you did on uh, Stephen Colbert's show a couple of years ago, where he yep. <laughs> he actually managed to outgeek you, Joe, which is <laughs> which is saying something. Um, and he said that you know that you know, whenever he was next in LA, that the two of you might play that he might join your group. Did he? Did that happen? He came for the Emmys that year, and I was out of town shooting a movie, so we we did not link up unfortunately so uh we're we're we are we have been trying to reschedule ever since <laughs> so whenever you don't when you, you have an off day like today you're taking the day off to do some work stuff uh, is there like a, a sort of underground network of D games in la that springs up in your absence people capitalizing on the fact that you know manganello is not running this massive D game you're absolutely right. Yeah, I don't know how. Like you're. Yeah, but, but that's but that's exactly right. That's what happens. That's what happens. You yeah. know, the joke is like you know the body's not even the body's not even cold yet, guys. Come on, you know, just uh, I got to do some work today. Um, but yes, there are like there's backup games and then there's other games and you know so so yeah there is a whole network here. People gotta get their fix. LA. Yeah, they got to get their fix. Um, so let's talk about let's talk about Arch Enemy uh, as well. So they, they, I want to focus on the producing side of it for you first, because this isn't your your first time producing. You're producing more and more these days. Uh, is that something that you know is a is a natural progression for you? That that's something that you wanted to do? Well, it's it's like me getting back to it. Basically, mm. it wasn't necessarily a progression as much as it was getting back to what got me into acting in the first place. I, used, I made movies That's what, as, a, as a teenager. So I would write movies, direct movies, act in some of them. And, uh, and that led into college, college that was very much frowned upon in drama school. Mm. Uh, we were not there to be trained for film. We were there to be trained in classical theater. Mm-hmm. Because the thinking was, if you can do classical theater, you can do anything, which I tend to agree with. Um, but there is, a, there is an adjustment, obviously. For, for film, which we all found coming out of drama school, but that was very much frowned upon. So I wound up raising in college, I raised $72,000 and uh, in, in cash and services uh, to shoot a movie in secret on campus. Uh, in secret, I say in secret, meaning like from the drama department, from our professors, yeah. because if they found out that we were spending our free time shooting this movie and our work was suffering, they were going to, they, they would cut kids when I went there. So yeah. they, would, they would cut you from the drama department and you would go home at Christmas and tell your parents that all your, the tuition money went to waste. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah. So this is something that, that I, I really grew up doing. And, and I think my brain, people that know me, I think some of them were surprised that I went into acting rather than directing or rather than something with, I think with more control. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that said, um, yeah, I'm not like a name only producer. There's a lot of actors that, you know, they get folded in as an executive producer, needs more salary. There's a prestige to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but I actually am a ground up producer. You know, I read scripts, we go out and find financing, um, put them together. My brother is my producing partner. Uh, he comes from a business background. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
you know, the two of us, uh, uh, we, you know, we work. And so it's about getting ourselves into a situation with, um, with, with people who are also going to do the work and people who love movies the way that we do, because, you know, I didn't, you know, we didn't start producing features, um, for any any reason other than we love good stories and we wanted to bring good stories to life and 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 really not compromise creatively in any way shape or form Mm. um and sometimes you live by that sometimes you die by that but um yeah but we're we're just we're just film lovers so so yeah so 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 you know this string of movies um arch enemy being the third Mm-hmm. Uh, that came about because I uh, I was obsessed with the movie Mandy. Some Mandy, mm-hmm. you know, directed by yeah. Penis Commodos. I was obsessed with that movie, and um, and also coincidentally, I played Dungeons and Dragons, sitting next to a guy named David Baxter, who uh, is a producer at a company called Legion M. Yeah. Oh yes, I know it. Yeah. They're, they're yeah fan owned company they're very genre uh so he, he i started a streetwear line david loved my streetwear designs and, and 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 wanted me to maybe do something for mandy so because of that i wound up meeting everyone involved with mandy including spectrovision which is you know lisa whalen Elijah wood and then this script came around called arch enemy and they sent it to me and thought it would be perfect for me. And it was built, basically that was the progression. It was built out of, out of, out of that. And that's how I wind up there. And, um, 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 you know, they, they saw the value in my brother and I, I guess, as, as producers and actually brought us in and, and asked us to, to partner up with them uh, to help get this thing made and finish it. And it's really interesting because it's, it's a very complex, very ambitious movie, but clearly you don't have... A Marvel budget behind you, so you have to find interesting ways of of getting past that. And there, there are animated sequences that must have been a really interesting challenge from a producerial point of view. First of all, before we talk about the character, uh, in working with the director in this, Adam Egypt Mortimer, in terms of visualizing that and and doing so on a on a budget that, as I say, isn't isn't Marvel sized. Well, that's the thing. I think originally, gosh, originally it was slated for a seventeen day shoot. Which wow. is, I mean, which is around the same length as a True Blood episode. So we're going to film this whole movie in, involving action sequences and uh, including like a, getting hit by a car. We were going to have stunts, and mm. then there were, there were certain these 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 big fights. Um, and uh, and so when you look at a schedule of seventeen days, yeah, that's uh, that's an incredibly daunting, you know, um, but. But I think what what helped was that we came in prepared. You know, yeah. we were we were ready to go. And I think on a, on a film that has to keep moving that way, you really have to stick the landing every time very quickly because we can't be taking a lot of takes. We've got to move. We got to get this thing done. And so, um, especially like even like uh, uh, you know, like a lot of the you know a lot of it revolves around basically if I can. If I can make people believe, if I can play a believable homeless man, then mm-hmm. we're there. Yeah. So for me, it was it was really about getting rid of the notion of it being a superhero movie. It's a movie about a schizophrenic, alcoholic, drug addict, homeless man. 
And so um, a lot of that work was already done. You know, I, I'm not somebody that comes to set and needs to ask the director what I should do. You know, we were trained at, you know, I was, that's my, that's the training, you know, that's you're, you're yeah, trained yeah. to, you're not going to, the director has all these other things to worry about. They shouldn't be worried about you. And so um, I think it's that kind of an attitude um, where, you know, coming from theater, I think, you know, you want, why, why, why couldn't you nail it on the first take? And, <laughs> and I think, yeah, uh, I think that, that coupled with the time I've spent in television and moving as quickly as we do in television, yeah. coupled with having produced independent films and seeing how the sausage is made and understanding, I think that that actually made me a better performer or ha has helped me, you know, be because you, um, yeah, you, you, um, you don't have a lot of time to mess around. I mean, and there were fight sequences. I'm not even getting into it. I'm just talking about the acting part yeah, of, of course. The, the fight scenes. You know, there was like, you know, a, a, a fight scene that would normally be a two day shoot on, or a one week shoot on an, on a big budget movie. Um, I've got one take before we go into overtime and we can't afford overtime. So I need to nail it. And there's about 15 things I need to have in the front of my brain. I need to land in a certain spot. I need to tackle another 230 pound man. I need to pick him up off of his feet, slam him, but slam him perfectly in a spot on the floor that doesn't hit the cameraman where I can also believably punch through the camera ball being sprayed in the face of blood. Um, you know, we don't have more than one costume, you know, so I have to get up and then move into another, you know, like there's tables are flying. Like you have to know this dance and, and you, you know, you got to get it right because if you don't hit it that one time, I don't know when we're ever going to be able to come back. to it. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, that's, that, and yeah, that's, that's, pressure. that's independent, that's independent film. Yeah. That's independent film. Christ, Christ. Yeah, man. I, I think, um, like I said, the, the, the producing and the acting for me go hand in hand. So I'm, I'm an actor who's thinking, trying to think like a producer and uh, basically just stress himself out even more. <laughs> well, fair play, fair play. And, uh, and what's next for you, Joe? What are you working on at the moment? What's, what's coming up for you? What's coming up next? Um, well, uh, another movie that I produced and, and star in, uh, Shoplifters of the World which is about, you know, for, for Brits out there, I'm sure I don't need to explain this, but there was this little band in Manchester you might have heard of called the Smiths, and they broke up in 1987. And there's a story that Morrissey talked about in a Details Magazine, old Details Magazine uh, interview, um, where he was, he was asked about this case in, in Denver in which a young man was so distraught over the breakup of the Smiths in 1987, that he held up a radio station at gunpoint and forced the you know, heavy metal DJ to play nothing but Smiths all night long to uh, impress this girl that he was in love with. Wow. Uh, and so that, that's the story. And I play the radio DJ. We have um, 20 Smith songs in the film, including Ozzy. We also have Ozzy's Bark at the Moon. So it's just an amazing, amazing soundtrack. Most of those Smith songs have never been used in, in film and TV. So we got that and um, a bunch of other stuff I can't talk about. Okay. Okay. Yet, That's interesting. There's some like incredibly, incredibly exciting, amazing, fun things. Um, 
I, I've been working nonstop, hence my not being able to run my D and D game tonight. <laughs> uh, I got to work on all this fun, crazy stuff that that I got coming up. And there's a Spider-Man movie as well, which seems to be mixing the multiverses and bringing back characters from Spider-Man movies past. You know, might we see your Flash again, so to speak? Not, not to my understanding. No, um, <laughs> there, there, there sure are a lot of other characters in the Marvel universe. I'd love to get to play though. So, okay, um, might be fun to let that sleeping dog lie, and uh, <laughs> I'd, I'd be happy to. To I think there's, you know, there's some some. Like I said, I grew up reading all the Marvel comics, so uh, yeah. there's some cool there's some cool characters that would fit me down the road. Galactus hasn't been taken yet. There you go. <laughs> Start that campaign. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, and he's only what thirty feet tall or so. That's that's fine. It's not too much taller than you. It's all good. No problem. I'll just start drinking lots of milk. <laughs> indeed. Well, I'm gonna let you go, John Manganello. It's been an absolute pleasure, man. Thank you so much, indeed. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Take care. Okay, so that was Joe Manganello, and Arch Enemy is available right now on VOD. Now it's time to delve deep into this week's movie news, and that starts with the BAFTA nominations, which came out this week. Mm. Uh, fairly interesting set of nominations, some interesting inclusions, some interesting exclusions, as is always the case. Um, I don't think it's going to be quite the, the forerunner of the Oscars or the predictor of the Oscars that it has been in previous years. I'm okay with that. Yeah. I'm happy with that. News. I'm happy with the BAFTAs instead of being this sort of weak facsimile of the Oscars. Mm-hmm. I'm, 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 I'm okay with them actually plowing their own furrow and, and reclaiming their own identity again. What they've done this year is how juries basically make the shortlists for each category. And I think that's been really, really interesting. And I think it's gone a long way to kind of getting rid of some of the unconscious bias issues that we've faced in the past. Because TV BAFTAs had- have been like that for years, haven't they? Yeah. Like this is, they've just moved it over to the film side. Exactly. And the Biffers have been doing that for a long time as well. So I think there's there's been real uh, efforts here to try and correct some of the kind of structural issues that, that led to basically the biggest films that most people had seen dominating the awards to a, to a kind of choking degree on everything else. And so that does allow for films that I think practically no one has seen in a couple of cases, like Quo Vadis, Aida, I have not seen yet myself. And I'm I'm excited to see it because its director is up for best director along with incredible people. Mm. So you know, it's a really kind of exciting lot. A lot yeah. of these are not out in the UK yet, so not that much used to actual you know British audiences who can't see them yet. Mm. But they will get to eventually. Yeah, but I mean that's all. That's always the way with the BAFTAs. They're they're always talking about stuff that is not out for a month or two months afterwards. Mm. So uh, so that's kind of okay. Uh, but it's good to see things like another round get a look in, which you know has a, maybe a little bit of a, more of a somewhat comic element than sometimes. It's really good to see Maria Bakalova there for Borat, which mm. would traditionally have been overlooked, I think. Uh, it is f- absolutely, unspeakably fantastic to see rocks sort of yes. dominating as much as it does. That is an incredible, incredible film. If you haven't seen it yet, it's on uh, Netflix. You can just turn on and watch it and it's Lives up utterly to its brilliant. Name. It really does. It rocks. That is 100% true. So yeah, I I feel like, you know, even the areas where people I would have liked to see there are not, Delroy Lindo, I think, could Mm. legitimately feel a little little bit snubbed. And Clark Um, Peters for that film, which was unexpected, but not unwelcome. No, not at all. He's very good. But, you know, I I would have thought that Delroy was the person you speak 
single out for that one. And, you know, I can complain about things like St. Maud is up for, I think, best British film, but Morford Clark isn't there in the actress conversation. So that's that implies that some of the kind of genre prejudices yeah. still exist. But I feel like overall, this gives me a lot of hope. Also, like in terms of diversity, like 16 of the 24 acting nominees are from minority groups. So they've yeah. clearly taken criticisms on board. Yeah, but I don't think, you know, none of this is a kind of uh, diversity nomination in some ways. It's very no, hard to think all. of any, quite frankly, white people who did better. And I think that's also the changing landscape that we're seeing in film. You know, the, the most talked about films this year have been things like Rocks, have been things like Minari, have been things like uh, His House and The White Tiger. So it, it kind of feels like that's overdue rather than being simply corrective. Let's go through category by category, as we did with the Golden Globes. We did it for yeah. the Golden Globes, which is a farce we could do with the Baptist, which, which is not. <laughs> I, I will say the on the horror thing, they, they have nominated his house for a, for a couple of big nominations, and mm-hmm. that's, that's good. That's fine. I loved his house. That was terrific. They've completely ignored Host, which I think mm-hmm. is ridiculous. And they've ignored, once again, Elizabeth Moss for The Invisible Man. I, you know, I, which I think there is still that inherent snobbery towards oh, comedy yeah, and horror yeah, in these absolutely. things, but uh, for which they should be ashamed. But anyway, hey ho, <laughs> director, uh, six nominees for director: Thomas Vinterberg for Another Round, Shannon Murphy for Baby Teeth, Lee Isaac Chung for Minari, Chloe Shao for Nomadland, Jasmila Shbanich, and I apologise for the mispronunciation, and Quo Fadis Aida, and Sarah Gavron for Rocks. So who are the big heavy hitters that we're expecting to see nominated for Oscars who aren't in there? Pretty much all of them, right? Honestly, it's entirely possible that the only one of these people up for the best director at the Oscars will be Chloe Zhao. Certainly she's the one mm-hmm. who's been the front runner for the Oscars so far. And most of these people have not appeared very much in the American conversation, with the possible exception of Lee Isaac Chung, who I think has there's been a, there's been a lot of talk about Minari there. Partly because of, you know, discriminatory rules that have ruled it out of, of the running for some categories. But I'm hoping that he gets his day at the Oscars as well, because I think that's a fantastic film. Let's move on to another category. Okay. Let's move on to... I've lost it. Here we go. Here we go. Supporting actor Daniel Kaluuya for Judas and the Black Messiah. Barry Keoghan for Calm with Horses. Mm-hmm. Alan Kim for Minari. Leslie Odom Jr. for One Night in Miami. I'm not entirely sure why they singled him out from that movie, but okay. Clark Peters from The Five Bloods, who actually, now I've had time to reflect on that movie, it is my favourite performance in that film. Mm. Uh, and Paul Rassi from Sound of Metal. Yeah. Which, which, it hasn't, which isn't out in this country yet, but uh, he is tremendous in it. Yeah, he is. Yeah, really, really good. I think, I mean, they're all fantastic performances. Uh, Alan Kim is obviously the cutest. There is a perhaps slightly unhelpful tradition of, of appointing a child actor, the sort of mascot of the season uh, every couple of years. And, and you know, hope, hopefully it doesn't do them any harm. But uh, he, he's adorable and, and a very, very, very good in the film. But I think that one surely is Daniel Kaluuya's to lose. I think it's a, it's just towering performance there. Yeah, I, I would say so. Supporting actress Neve Algar from Calm with Horses. Great. Kosar Ali from Rocks. Maria Great. Bakalova from Borat, subsequent movie film. Oh my God, they've actually figured out that people who turn in comedic performances are just as accomplished as dramatic performances. My God almighty, the scales might fall from their eyes. Dominic Fishback, Judas and the Black Messiah, Ashley Madikway from County Lines, which is, a, again, a tremendous film if you haven't seen it, and Yoo Jung Yoon from Minari. I mean, just fantastic, fantastic performances for all of them. I have no idea who the frontrunner in that lot is. None mm. whatsoever. 
So, and that's the way it should be, right? Yeah, love it. Brilliant. How many times have we got to Oscar night and we know exactly who's going to win yeah. and it's just a procession so and it's so dull? Yeah. This is great. And this is what the BAFTAs are supposed to be. They're supposed to be a celebration of British film. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well as, yes, taking in the Americans and, of course, in a few cases here, overlapping with the Irish. But they're not, you know, it is not supposed to be a slavish attempt to guess what the Oscars are going to go for and look like an influencer on the Oscars. And that's what it has become over the past few years. And they are absolutely doing the right thing to move away from that. So, yay, just all of this, even for the omissions, like, mm. you know, at least we're having a discussion about it. This is great. Let's keep the momentum going into the leading actor category. Uh, Riz Ahmed, Sound of Metal, Chadwick Boseman, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Adarsh Gurav, The White Tiger, Sir Anthony Hopkins, The Father, Mads Mikkelsen. You don't have to be Mads to be nominated, but it helps. Another round. And Tahar Rahim for The Mauritanian. Uh, what's interesting, actually, about the supporting actress category is Jodie Foster, who uh, is who won the Golden Globe, mm. and Glenn Close, who is, I think, somehow still the favourite to win what? the Oscar, mainly because she's Glenn Close. They're not even nominated. Um, mm. So that's good. That not, is not good. Not good, but that's No, in- but it's, it's fair, because quite frankly, Jodie Foster is absolutely fine in the Mauritanian, and it is 100% mm. a, a role she could play in her sleep. It is not taxing whatsoever. Tahar Rahim, I think, is better in the film, um, but I wouldn't put him top of this category. Uh, I would I would imagine that's a Chadwick Boseman versus Riz Ahmed fight, uh, if there's any justice in the world. Uh, but yeah, and going close, like, God bless her. She absolutely deserves an Oscar. She has been nominated, I think, six times without winning. That is a disgrace, but that is not a disgrace to fix with this performance. She came close. Hey. There we go. I was waiting for Jimbo to say something. Uh, <laughs> leading actress didn't disappoint when it, when it came. Leading actress, Bookie Bakray, rocks. Uh, she certainly she does. does. It's true. Rada she Blank, does. the 40-year-old version. Mm-hmm. Vanessa Kirby, Pieces of a Woman. Frances McDormand, Nomadland. Wumi Masaku for his house and Alfre Woodard for clemency. Yeah, correcting one of Oscar's oversights there by uh, by nominating Alfre Woodard, who was eligible for the Oscars last year and and was mm, snubbed. She's uh, I very think, fucking good in that film. Yeah, she really is. I I think this is a Frances McDormand winner, but uh, honestly, again, I would be very very happy with any of those performances. And again, we're seeing a little bit of openness to genre there, which is very welcome. A little bit. A little, little bit. bit. Very De Niro, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit of yo, openness. Yo, uh, yo, 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 Outstanding British film, Calm With Horses, The Dig, The Father, His House, Limbo, The Mauritanian, Mogul Mowgli, Promising Young Woman, Rocks, St. Maud. Really, you couldn't find a way to get host in there? Motherfuckers. Uh, and then best film, The Father, The Mauritanian, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, and The Trial of the Chicago 7. Now, mm, mm, yeah. I'm going to say that's not... A great lineup. I think, yeah, I think best film is where they've uh, punted it slightly. I, I feel like Outstanding British Film is a really strong lineup with the possible exception of The Dig, which is fine and respectable and nice, <laughs> but not on the standard of the other films in that category. But the best film list is a little bit, let's try and predict the Oscars again. And, you know, it feels like that's where they've got the sort of. And also, why is there why is there so little overlap with with the outstanding British films? That that makes no sense to me, really. So, yeah, you know, or it's any fine. of it, really. Like, so how do you yeah. nominate? How do you nominate, for example, "Promising Young Woman" as the best film of the year, but you don't nominate Emerald Fennell for best mm. director or Carrie Mulligan for yeah. 
Best Actress, how do you nominate The Trial of Chicago 7 for Best Film and not nominate Aaron Sorkin for Director or any of its cast in any of the categories? It feels weird and disconnected to me. And mm. and I think this lineup perhaps, and the Oscar lineup that's going to be announced in a few weeks' time, perhaps suggests that the last year or so was actually not not an all-timer of a year. I'm going to say that. I'm going to, I'm going to say that and be as generous as I can. I, I mean, I, I think it's been a very good year, but for the kind of films that are small and easily overlooked. And, and you know, it's because it has been the sort of, I don't know, respectable big budget movie that's been kind of moved into next year and away from now. It's the sort of, and I'm not saying this would have been a front runner or necessarily a contender, but it's the sort of Steven Spielberg does West Side Story level movies that have shifted um, out of the release date because they're too big budget to really risk on streaming, but, you know, not kind of blockbusters or whatever. And I, I think, I mean, honestly, so many of these films I think are fucking great and absolutely old timers. And, uh, th- you know, they just would usually have been drowned out for lack of oxygen and lack of money. So I'm, I'm really glad to see them there, actually. I just, I hope that their wins don't get overshadowed by this attitude that they were somehow the runners up or the B team. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if I'm saying they're the B team. I just, I, I don't think it was a banner year for for cinema, and I think that's kind of reflected in the best film nominations. But I also think the best film nominations are, as I said, inconsistent. Yeah, in that, that's, yeah, yeah. How, how do how do you, how do you nominate rocks in so many different categories? And not make make exactly. it a best it makes film. Makes no sense. What's the, well, I started out very positive about the nominations, <laughs> and I'm finishing less so. So let's move on to something else. Uh, what's happening in the world of movie news? Star Trek. Star Trek is oh happening God. in the world Where? of movie news. Tell us, oh, tell us. it's so exciting. So, Kalinda Vasquez, who uh, has been writing on Star Trek Discovery, has pitched an idea for a brand new Star Trek film, and it may, may, emphasis on may, come to something, which would be nice, um, because obviously Star Trek uh, Beyond didn't do brilliantly at the box mm-hmm. office, and so everything's kind of stalled. You know, we were promised another one of those films. We were also promised the Tarantino Star Trek film. Nothing seems to be happening on that front. Although yeah, good, because it sounds like on- a weird idea. But yeah, yeah, they are firing on all warp nacelles on TV at the moment. Paramount Plus is awash with Star Treks at the moment. Uh, But uh, yeah, so this may come. No idea what it's about. No idea what it'll be. But the fact that another Trek movie may be coming is always cause for celebration. Mm-hmm. Engage, make it so. Absolutely, <laughs> make it so. Make it so. Do we think this is going to be in the the Pine cast? It's a good question. I I feel like it's because no, she's it's pitching an idea, like a new concept. I mm-hmm. wonder whether it's going to because it said it's pitched as an, an original idea. So I don't think it is is an Enterprise crew one. It might be, yeah. and and I think given the success they've had on the small screen with Star Trek recently, I think they're much more open to trying new things and new ideas. Yeah. To in many ways boldly going where <laughs> no one has gone before. Um, so yeah, that'll be good. Love it. Uh, in other good news about things that we like, there are two, count them, two Steven Spielberg stories this week. Hooray! Hooray! Um, one is a loosely autobiographical film, uh, which he's apparently been mulling for a while. So it's about a movie-obsessed young man who might have some talent. And uh, Michelle Williams is apparently in talks to play the mother of the Spielberg-inspired character. And Tony Kushner is apparently set to write the script. So that sounds interesting. Has written the script, in fact. Has written the script. Sorry, yes, of course. With and Spielberg. Then, yes. Who hasn't written the script in a long, long time? I think AI was his last one, wasn't it? He was I a believe co-writer that, that's the thing, the last thing he was credited with. Yes. Yeah, um, and then he is also teaming up with his tribute act, the Duffer Brothers, uh, to uh, <laughs> <laughs> to finally make Stephen King's The Talisman, which he's apparently he bought the rights to in 1982. 
uh, two years before the book was published and uh, has been basically working on it ever since. So it might finally be moving forward. Yes, indeed. I need to reread The Talisman. I have very little memory of it. It's a book he co-wrote with Peter Straub, mm-hmm. and then they, they wrote a sequel to it years later called Black House, um, which I've read both books. I enjoyed both books, but if you ask me right now to tell you about both books, I couldn't. Um, so it's a bit of, bit of a, a black house, black hole in my hey. Stephen King memory. Of course, Chris, as you know, it's a it's a story about a 12-year-old boy called Jack Sawyer mm-hmm. who sets off on a road multiple, trip. There's multiple dimensions and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, to happening. save his mother's yeah. life. And he's he's crisscrossing both real America and a fancy world equivalent called the Territories. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, and of course, uh, what will crisscross make you do? Jump, jump, jump. Correct. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, yeah, so look, cool. This is this is cool. This is this is fun. This is exciting. Apparently, Francis Ford Coppola has been pushing Spielberg to make something about his childhood for a long, long time. Huh. So that that'll be that'll be fun. Uh, what I will- hope it is that it isn't his kind of swan song that he makes a movie about his childhood and drops a megaphone and uh, no Ew. retires. Don't do that. Don't do that, Spielberg. Don't do that. Uh, should we talk about Cocaine Bear? Because that, that's <laughs> That's the most insane pitch of the week, isn't it? So the, there was a bear. There was a bear. There <laughs> was, was some cocaine. cocaine. Some cocaine, yes. And then the bear was off his tits of cocaine and went to Hollywood and became a studio executive and one day <laughs> greenlit a movie <laughs> in which a bear takes a load of cocaine. Uh, this is the only logical explanation behind this movie. So Cocaine Bear is a true life story, a heartwarming tale about a bear that one day happened upon a shitload of cocaine that had been dropped out of a plane by presumably smugglers or maybe lax DEA agents. Who knows? And this bear apparently mistook the cocaine for sugar or something like that and ingested so much of the cocaine that, well, it carked it. Well, that should be fun. And who's... It's Elizabeth Banks, right? (laughs) Elizabeth Elizabeth Banks Banks playing the bear. (laughs) <laughs> yes, she could take that to the banks. <laughs> Making yes. a film, but it's it's it does feel like a Mad Libs idea, doesn't it? It, it does, really, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. But it's a thing apparently that's happening, and I checked, and it isn't the first of April yet. So, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Cocaine bear. Hey, who doesn't want to watch a film about a bear getting ripped to the tits and then dying? <laughs> <laughs> Any more Paddington Three news? <laughs> that would Happy. be a left field choice of story, wouldn't it? Better not be a crossover. <laughs> Marface, because of marmalade. Michael B. Jordan has been confirmed as the director of Ooh. Creed Three. See, I, I'm having a weird sort of. Groundhog Day thing here. I could swear I've got some facts about that. I could swear that we already knew this news. Like it felt, it felt like we knew this months ago. No, we talked about this when it was first mooted, but mm. it's been it's been confirmed. Confirmed. This is good. I think it is good. Yeah, I'm there for it. Absolutely. Yeah, I was there for it when I first heard it many months ago. <laughs> Directing has always been an aspiration, but the timing had to be right," said Michael B. Jordan, presumably having already got into a car that was on fire. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All his interviews for Without Remorse should be in cars (laughs) that he has just set on fire. Absolutely, in flaming, (laughs) immolating cars. Yeah, Bagsy, not do that one. There's no better way of making sure I don't go over my time limit, as I often do. Just one more question, Michael. No, we need to get out of this car right now. We're going to die. Uh, so he says, uh, Creed 3 is that moment, a time in my life where I've grown more sure of who I am, holding agency in my own story, maturing personally growing professionally and learning from the greats like Ryan Coogler, most recently Denzel Washington, and other top-tier directors I respect. All so right. there you go. 
It's all happening. Speaking of all happening, if you haven't already seen the picture of Lady Gaga and Adam Driver in the House of Gucci, please seek it out online. It will cure whatever ails you. I believe it cures COVID, but please don't quote me on that. It might. It's it's fantastic. And it is yet another weapons grade deployment of the Aaron Jumper. So just I wish I could rock a cable knit roll neck like he does. It, it, he is rocking it. He is really he rocking is. it. And she is rocking that hat. I mean, my God, the power in that image could could fuel, you know, quite a few small cities. See, I thought it was a parody image when I first saw it. I genuinely <laughs> did. I was like, is this an SNL yeah, sketch? An SNL vibe to it, yeah. it? And then it was like, oh, this is a real movie. Okay. I'm okay with that as well, because the fashion industry is ridiculous. So we should yeah. be parodying it, even when we're telling serious dramas about it. Hey, you know what you guys should be doing in relation to the news about Kenneth Branagh's latest movie? What should you we You should be-, be dancing. Yeah. Oh, because God. he is going to direct... The biopic of the Brothers Gibb, a.k.a. the Biggies. <gasps> and I'm very, very, very mildly excited about it. I'm sorry, I can't say anything. It's just emotion taking me over. So. <laughs> how, how deep is your love for the Biggies, Chris? <laughs> it's pretty deep. It's not, like, fast. And uh, I don't, I've got the greatest hits, basically. But it's good. I like the greatest hits. Good stuff. Mm. Is this film going to be a comedy or or is it is, is it going to oh, be? Here we go, here we go, here we go. <laughs> is it going to be a, go? a, a tragedy? Tragedy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. When Grogo's gone and you can't go on, it's tragedy. <laughs> Bit of a call back there to a podcast that yes, only subscribers yes, will have heard. I know you did that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is exciting uh, because yeah. um, Frank Marshall did that documentary. Um, yeah. How can you mend a broken? How can you mend a broken heart? <laughs> Frank Marshall directed a documentary a few months ago, and now uh, Kenneth Branagh, Sir Ken, Sir Ken Branagh, is going to direct the biopic of the Bee Gees. When did it become Branagh and Gaga? It's <laughs> like, hard to I, say. I don't know. Around the same time, Dracula became Dracula. I was about, I was about uh, to say the same thing. Dracula <laughs> yes. has been Dracula on this podcast since time immemorial. So, so, um, so I, I, there, there's some slight, slight slight caveats here that I, I should mention. So like Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, Barry Gibb, who is of course the the last surviving member of the Bee Gees, is apparently heavily involved. So I hope that doesn't mean that we're going to be, you know, in whitewashed hagiography territory here um, and that they can actually tell the story of the Bee Gees, high-pitched falsettos and all. Was there, but was like, and this is me speaking from a position of ignorance because I actually haven't seen the Frank Marshall film yet. But was there that similar, you know, interpersonal angst yeah, in the Bee Gees? Yeah, yeah. Oh, was they, there they, they the split up. Okay. There was there, there was quite a bit of um, sibling rivalry going on. There was a okay. there was a period where they you know they all kind of went their separate ways and they came back. Yeah, it's a tale uh, ultimately, I guess, of of brotherly love and of course squeezing your nuts together so that they you know you produce that noise. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's um. But yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be really fun with it's with bitchin' yeah. bitchin' soundtrack, folks. Bitchin it's gonna tunes. be bitchin' and like tunes. Large hair, like really beautifully bouffant <laughs> mm. hair. Like if oh. you don't have oh. volumizing moose already at hand, don't oh, even bother word. auditioning, guys. You know, Barry Gibb, what a oh. man! Walk around him. Just you know what's more admire. exciting than that, though. Was that Kurt the section? Sutter, the man behind? <laughs> Sons of Anarchy, and who worked on The Shield as well, is doing a new movie film for Blumhouse, actually, which is going to appear on Netflix. It's called Mm -hmm. The Beast. The Beast, (gasps) and it is set in an 18th century English village that is besieged by a mysterious and elusive beast 
killing <gasps> the people. There's monsters, there's villagers presumably dying, there's religious fanaticism in this as well, and a lowly trapper is tasked with the impossible task of killing said beast. This is apparently inspired by the Beast of Gévaudin, which is a true story of a mysterious beast that terrorised a French village in the 1760s, and who can forget that? Is he just remade Curse of the Were-Rabbit? Yeah. Or Beowulf. Or you the know, village. Whichever you want. <laughs> if they turn out to be, you know, the way that if film turned out. actual beasts, yes. Or yeah. any yeah. Hammer movie. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> or that amazing French film, which somehow managed to combine like 17th century France and beasts and martial arts and just craziness and Vincent Cassel mm-hmm. and Brotherhood Monica of the Wolf. Brotherhood of the Wolf, thank you. That's the one. I have it on my shelf as well and I was kind of still blanking on the title. Unbelievable. How dare you? Mark Dacascos. Mark Dacascos, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was a good film. I mean, mm-hmm. it was a crazy film, but I loved it. Yeah. I'm sure there is other news to talk about, but in the interest of Chris's sanity and the fact that he has to edit yes. this podcast, shall we move on to this week's reviews? Yes, I think that's a good yes. idea. Let's have a guest first, shall we? Oh, oh yes. yes, good. Let's. Yeah, let's have the final guest this week, who is the co-writer and director of Judas and the Black Messiah, which is released this week on PVOD, along with a couple of other Warner Brothers titles that have been sitting on the shelf for a little while. Uh, But this one is a really interesting drama that depicts the offence that led up to the assassination, quite frankly, of Fred Hampton, who was a leading figure in the Black Panthers in Chicago towards the end of the 1960s. It tells the, the story not just of Hampton, played by Daniel Kaluuya, who was nominated for a BAFTA, won a Golden Globe, and will probably win the Oscar for this as well. But also William O'Neill, who was a fellow Black Panther turned FBI informant who essentially set up Hampton for his assassination at the hands of the FBI. Very, very interesting movie. O'Neill is played in this by Lakeith Stanfield. And I spoke to Shaka King a couple of months ago now, I think it was. So before all the Golden Globes nominations, before the BAFTAs and before the Oscars. But nevertheless, we still talked about what it's like going through awards season when you basically aren't really allowed to leave your flat. And the origins of the project, including the ultimate real-life fate of William O'Neill. So, spoilers abound. Be careful of those. And about that title, that wonderful title, Judas and the Black Messiah. Here we go. Me talking to Shaka King. Do please enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the director of Judas and the Black Messiah, Mr. Shaka King. How are you, sir? I'm great. How you doing? I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. Uh, this is obviously a very, very strange time for everybody. And I imagine for filmmakers like yourself at the moment, you know, with the uh, award season going on, ordinarily you'd be out pressing the flesh. You'd be at all sorts of luncheons and events and screenings and, and whatnot. How has that side of things been for you in the in the middle of pandemic and lockdown? Well, you know, the truth of the matter is I have no context for it because I've never yeah. been here before. Yeah. Um, you know, I only, only have, you know, stories that my friends who had that experience have told me about it. And, you know, it, it, it seems like based upon the things they've told me that it's always a sort of double-edged sword. You know, I remember Brian telling me about the amount of times he and Zinzi got sick just dealing with, you know, literally pressing the flesh and pressing the, the bacteria, the bacterial flesh, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, so um, it, it's, it, it is definitely like strange to, you know, spend eight to 12 hours on a computer talking to people from my living room. Um, but, you know, the last two years has been incredibly strange, you know. Um, and so I've learned to just embrace 
the peculiarity of it all and be thankful that I'm alive, man. Yeah. I wanted to take you back to the beginning of the journey for you because I know you've, you know, you said the last two years has been very, very interesting and strange and peculiar, uh, but you've been on this movie for, for quite some time. Uh, how and, and I know at the beginning you had a there was an, an idea of potentially making a much more sprawling film, uh, not just about Fred Hampton and William O'Neill, but basically just capturing that entire period in one go. Can you talk about starting off there and what made you narrow your focus in, in this way? So, you know, when Will Burson and I started writing this screenplay, um, for me, a touchstone was Battle of Algiers uh, and, you know, the sort of ensemble nature of that piece uh, and the just unflinching um, politics of that film uh, were also a touchstone. And, I, and you know, I, I hope that we were at least able to keep that, that aspect of the film and, and bring it in ours in some degree. Um, but... Um, you know, we, we found that it was just really challenging because, and, and I should say that movie was a touchstone, but we were also inspired by all the research we'd done that, you know, brought forth into our consciousness, these people we knew nothing about, like Doc Satchel, you know, who really spearheaded the medical clinic and that the Illinois chapter mm-hmm. um, built uh, and, and Wanda Ross you know, who started the breakfast program uh, in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we wanted to elevate these these folks just as much as we were elevating, you know, Fred Hampton and, and Deborah Johnson, now known as Akula Najiri. You know, same goes for Bobby Rush, who, you know, co-founded the Illinois chapter with Fred Hampton. Um, but what we found were a couple of things. One, we found that it's tough to get the script under 200 pages. <laughs> <laughs> right. When you're, when you're telling that sprawling story, yeah. um, that was an issue. And we also found that, you know, we, this is, we were developing this for a good year with, you know, Ryan Coogler's company proximity and Charles King's company macro. And they know how to get movies like this made. They know how to make studio movies. Yeah. You know, you know, Will and I, we've never made a studio movie. So we had to, you know, listen to them and really take their consult when they would say things like, you, this movie's not going to get made if it's this abroad. <clears throat> you know, you, you pitch to us the departed inside the world of COINTELPRO. And, that's, and, you, and you even knew when you pitched it to us that that was the way to get this movie made. So that's the movie you have to d- deliver on. And it, it, it wasn't until maybe like the sixth draft where we, I didn't do that, where Ryan talked about the power of of actually embracing that that framework and how it would get the movie to such a wider array of people and get this information and this knowledge and history to the broadest audience possible. And when he put it to me like that and talked to me, you know, we had a personal conversation just about his own experience in terms of, you know, taking Fruitvale around the country versus taking Creed and and Black Panther around the country, you know, and, and how, you know, Black folks to this day, a lot of people haven't seen Fruitvale, don't even know that Ryan made that movie. That was a movie that did incredibly well amongst, you know, white critics and on, you know, the, the, the festival circuit. It's largely mm-hmm. attended by white people. And, you know, as much as we were making this movie for 
the people who have known and have loved Fred Hampton have been waiting to see a movie about his life for decades and decades. You know, we also were making this movie for young people who have no idea who the Black Panthers are, whose first introduction to even Black Panther was the movie that Ryan made. Um, and so, you know, when he put it to me like that, I said, okay, I can get behind actually diving into making this a, a true two-hander. Um, and still, you know, obviously trying to keep some of the aspects that made this somewhat of an ensemble piece, um, you know, and, and that was like probably the next seven drafts where we, where we explored that, you know. So you've, you've got this focus already then, I guess you're, you're steering in in the focus of, of Fred Hampton and, and William O'Neill. At what point did the idea to, A, call it Judas and the Black Messiah, where did that come from for you? And B... The decision, and it's a really interesting decision, to make William O'Neill the anchor of the movie, which is really interesting in terms of things like audience complicity with that character and his moral dilemma as the movie goes on. Well, let's start. I'll start with the second half of the question, um, which is the decision to you know anchor it in William O'Neill's perspective, which it doesn't all the way do. I think actually in earlier cuts it really did. Okay, but we we took that down because um. We found that it really bothered a lot of viewers, particularly people who love Fred Hampton and were coming to this movie to learn about him. And to not even, I mean, people came to learn about him, but also just to come and celebrate him. So it, 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 we found that we couldn't anchor it fully in his in his POV because it would turn a lot of people off. But it was still important to to make him a central character. And you know, the decision to do that started for me with seeing, reading the eyes. I didn't, at the time, I didn't, hadn't seen the eyes on the prize interview in full. I didn't get access to that until later. I'd seen snippets, you know, the, the edits that made it into the film. Yeah. I saw the transcript. Oh. I had the transcript for years. And so it was reading the transcript and trying to, you know, you're writing this character. There's not a lot of information out there about him. Most of what I'm going to glean about him, I'm going to glean from this one interview that he gave. And when Will and I, we didn't know initially, when we found out that he committed suicide, you know, the night that Eyes on the Prize 2 aired on television, that was such a powerful, tragic piece of information that it made me say, you know, there's really something to using this interview, not quite as a full-on narrative device. It's not, you know, it's not a, a piece of narration, but to just to learn, to start the movie by, okay, this person is still alive, right? And to start with this question of how do you feel about what you did, you know, and to end and to chart that and to then end with him saying what he said, which is such a destabilizing ending. Mm. You know what I mean? It's like you get, you get, it's, I, I kind of look at it as a combo in terms of a fighting combo, right? You know, you, you watch this guy and by the end of the movie, Lakeith playing him feels so, you see the remorse written all over his face. Mm -hmm. And then you hear him asked about how he felt. And he lie he's lying in that moment. He's lying to you, the viewer, but he's also lying to himself, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of the answer that he gives about, you know, not being an armchair revolutionary. Right. Mm -hmm. And so to to get that piece of information and then to find out that he wasn't he kept the lie up for all these years, but he didn't but but ultimately the lie consumed him. He killed himself, you know, the night that that interview, not rather not the interview, that that series debuted on television. It's almost like, you know, sweeping the leg and then as you're falling to the floor, getting punched in the face. Yeah. And to me, 
that's like, that's why I go to movies just from a cinematic standpoint. I go to movies for that. That's what I want to feel. And, and for a movie like this, where, you know, you have this guy, this, this almost unreliable narrator carrying you through, it felt like the, it felt like just a, a profound way to go about things. The audience's complicity in William O'Neill's situation is fascinating because I think you do something really interesting, which is that you use the sort of the language of the thriller genre to put him in these situations. And obviously, we don't want to get too much into specific scenes, but you put him into these situations where he is you know he's he's there's danger that he could be discovered and found out at any second and it's really fascinating because we should want that to happen we know what has happened we know that history has happened and that can't change but it's fascinating how way the way you manipulate the audience's sympathies towards him casting the keith helps i think enormously in that as well because he is such a tremendously sympathetic actor but uh can you talk about going for that that sort of that's very complex audience relationship with with William O'Neill. It's so true. It's so true. I think I think for me, it isn't so much about wanting him to get out of those situations as much as I think trauma is is watching someone have to try to get out of those situations. I'm not so. It's not so much that you're supposed to be rooting for William O'Neill. You're not supposed to be rooting for William O'Neill. If anything, you're rooting for William O'Neill to have a change. You know, you're have hoping that, that at some yeah. point, that at some point he's going to realize, yo, you're a total pawn for the state. This guy, Roy Mitchell, does not care about you. You know, he's not invested in you nearly in the way that these people actually are invested in you. And that, you know, you need to be fighting with these people because you all ultimately really have the same interest as opposed to be betraying them. You're hoping for that, you know. Um, but I think that because we've grown up watching so many under so many classic undercover movies you know that it's entertaining to watch someone in that situation essentially it's like it's a misdirection you know what i'm yeah. saying all it is is complexity and misdirection and to me like this is that situation like you said you know this um this this rat you know and and who you're watching you know, weasel his way out of situations. It's, I think it's the kind of thing that has a sort of doubly kind of, to me, interesting effect where you um, are entertained and also you don't like him. You know, you really, yeah. really strongly dislike him, especially in those moments where you see him um, taking pleasure in manipulating others, you know? Yeah. Um, and to me, that was another sort of thing that was interesting to me to explore was just like you know the 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 sport of theft which i think is we we ascribe to criminals but you know you we might as i think it's just a capitalist ethos you know this idea of competition and winning and beating and the thrill of winning and manipulating being just as powerful a draw as the acquisition of, you know, wealth and money. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like when William O'Neill steals that car and gets away and he laughs, he's not only laughing because he has a nice shiny car, he's laughing because he beat that guy out of a nice shiny car. Yeah. He won. He's got power. He's got dominance. He won. I know where our time grows short though, Shaka, as well. I, I did want to talk about the title because it's, it's A, it's a phenomenal title. At what point did you 
come upon that. And in terms of the structure, again, putting O'Neill first, Judas and the Black Messiah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the title initially was, was Jesus Was My Homeboy, which was vetoed by the Panthers and the family. And so we had to go back to the drawing board. Um, and I think another title we came up with, there was a title I loved called 30 Pieces of Silver. Mm-hmm. Um, but I couldn't get, you know, the backing of, 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 you know, of some of the producers in the studio and they, they weren't into that one. So the last, you know, it was just, we were throwing out titles and I was like, Judas and the Black Messiah. And I was like, okay, the reason, you know, the Black Messiah and Jewish, Judas just doesn't sound right. It was that, it really, it wasn't so much that we decided to put Judas first because, you know, the, the movie starts with O'Neill or, you know, O'Neill is the, is the, you know, primary character. I mean, in hindsight, after we kind of like came up with Judas and the Black Messiah, we said, well, yeah, it makes sense in that regard too. You know, the movie starts with O'Neill. Yeah. But, and you know, he's our way into the subject matter, right? But at the same, but really it, it just, the, the initial impetus was just, the, it ring, has a ring to it. As simple as it has a ring to it. Like the Black Messiah and Judas is spoken. And if you look at it and think about it in the poster and print, it's not going to lay out right to have that long title and then that short one underneath. You got to flip those and just, it, it was all, it, it was, the initial impetus was purely aesthetic. Interesting, because it's got such a punch to it as well, but it has that, that dramatic layer of, of meaning also, which is, mm-hmm. which really, really mm-hmm. works. Shaka, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, man. Great to talk to you. Take Likewise. Care. Cheers. Okay, so that was Shaka King, and now it's time to delve deep into this week's reviews. Now, there have been a number of films that are awaiting release dates um, and you know, everyone's been in limbo because of the COVID restrictions in this country and pretty pretty much around the world. So there, so we weren't sure what was happening with Judas and the Black Messiah and some other Warner Brothers movies like Locked Down, the Doug Lyman, Stephen Knight movie by Anne Hathaway and Chiwetel Ejiofor basically pulling off a heist whilst locked down in their house together in London, or the little things, the Denzel Washington, Rami Malek, Jared Leto thriller. But good news is they're all out this week. <laughs> so um, the news reaches last week that they're all coming out this week around the same time. They're they're now out for you to, to rent uh, on PVOD. We're going to talk about locked down and the little things in detail next week and we're going to delve into Judas and the Black Messiah I will also say there's a whole bunch of other movies that still haven't been given release dates things like Monster Hunter and Wild Mountain Time um, things have been sitting on the shelf for a little while so I think once there's more clarity about what's happening and when cinemas are reopening in this country I think you might find that suddenly a lot of those movies will hopefully hopefully head towards uh, cinematic debuts but Judas and the Black Messiah which is a film that I think I'm slightly disappointed that it's not going to be hitting cinemas. It's on mm. PVOD. What what did we make of of this one, folks? Yeah, I thought this was um, was pretty fascinating, actually. So it it obviously features Fred Hampton, uh, Daniel Kaluuya's character, but we come into it through the point of William O'Neill, like Keith Stanfield's character, and he's the kind of small time crook, a small time crook, who is. Uh, recruited by Jesse Plemons at the FBI to infiltrate the Panthers and basically bring down Hampton. And 
it's yet another film in a, in a series that we've seen recently with ML, MLK FBI and with the United States versus Billie Holiday that shows just how institutionally corrupt and racist the FBI were at this point and how completely fixated they were. Also, uh, Trial of the Chicago 7 uh, a little bit longer ago, how completely fixated mm-hmm. the state was on bringing down any kind of uh, organized civil rights, uh, you know, well, organization, any kind yeah. of any kind of opposition and and search for fundamental change in race relations in the sixties and seventies. So, as part of a sort of you know picture that's been painted by all of this art recently, it's it's a really really valuable just in that sense. But it's also really good at highlighting Fred Hampton's particular role. He was only twenty one when he died, and he'd already accomplished just an astonishing amount for the Black Panthers during that time. And that's because he was an astonishingly charismatic, effective leader. And so there's a real tragedy here because you have this schmuck and uh, and who is surrounded by schmucks because Jesse Plemons' character as well is you know, not a hero in any sense, mm. who are intent no, on awful. bringing, yeah, they're completely yeah. terrible. And they're intent on bringing this guy down, you know, when they're not worth like a half of him. So it's it's quite frustrating to watch in that sense. It's also, and, and just infuriating the way that the, the, the powers that be are against him. But it's also fascinating to see more of Hampton. And I think my frustration with this film, to the extent that I had one, was that I, I honestly didn't want the O'Neill framing device. I didn't want to be coming at it from that lens so much. I wanted to spend more time with Hampton himself because his scenes with Dominic Fishback as well, that's the sort of private life scenes, are beautifully played. And it's a beautiful look at the sort of tension between a public and a private persona for somebody like him who has a cause he enormously believes in and is working enormously hard at. And I feel like you lose some of that when you keep going back to this absolutely irredeemable dickhead who is is tasked with bringing him down. So I thought that the, the film was was really good. I think that um, Shaka King does a very good job of finding the little moments that kind of highlight bigger issues in terms of you know the the, the unpredictability of this and the way that O'Neill sometimes is quite proud of himself for playing the role that he plays and is sometimes quite ashamed of himself and can't quite figure out his own feelings towards Hampton. I thought that was really good, but I just wanted almost a straightforward. Fred Hampton biopic, I think, at the end of the day, and this ain't that. So, but it, but but you know, it's more original feeling and more more kind of vital maybe for that. So that I think that's probably mm. my mistake rather than the filmmakers. But you know, it it's beautifully shot. It's a Sean Bobbitt film who obviously works a lot with Steve McQueen, and I think it's it's gorgeously put together. It's got all that kind of seventies kind of you know very natural brownie color schemes, but in a way that somehow pops on the camera anyway. Uh, it, yeah, I really liked it overall. Yeah. As I said to Shaka King, we discussed it mm-hmm. a little bit about, you know, that I thought it was very interesting how he puts you absolutely in the mix with William O'Neill mm-hmm. and uses thriller conventions in a way to almost make you as nervous as he is maybe stop slightly short of saying rooting for him in situations where he's about to be found out. You know, that thriller convention of the person who has a secret and, you know, they're about to be found out and they have to lie desperately, a bit like, I guess, Leonardo DiCaprio in The Departed. He's an undercover operative, essentially. And undercover operatives are always this close to being found out. Uh, But we know that he's going to do a terrible thing. And Mm. we know that the guy he's going to do it to doesn't deserve it. And we know he's being exploited 
by the by a racist system. So it's really interesting to think about where you know manipulating you and pushing your sympathies along for this guy who frankly doesn't deserve it. And um, perhaps as well, casting the Keith Sanfield is really interesting that because I think he's a guy who can't be unsympathetic. There's something about him mm. that, you know, he's just really inherently likable as a performer. So you, you maybe find yourself going along with O'Neill a little more than you perhaps would want to. I actually think that uh, Stanfield's been a little bit unfairly overlooked in the awards reckoning because this is a really difficult role. Mm. And, you know, there's, there's, there's such a showiness to the character of Fred Hampton as written here. And Daniel Kaluuya is fantastic and mesmerizing the minute he goes into rooms and commands respect and authority and he's giving speeches and he's incredible. You can't take your eyes off him, but the more furtive, interestingly shaded role, I think is the one that that, that is William O'Neill. Um, I think Stanfield's fantastic in this, really, really fantastic. Four stars then for Judas and the Black Messiah. And next up we have Cherry, Cherry, which is a word I've always struggled to say. Cherry, 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 Cherry Coke. Do you want a Cherry Coke? Or not Jerry Seinfeld, Cherry, C-H. <laughs> I think you're overthinking it. Am I overthinking this? Cherry, bit. Cherry, Cherry. We have Cherry, which is a new film from the Russo brothers. And so you may know those guys. They made the biggest film of all time, uh, at least for another few weeks because you see what Jim Cameron's done this week they're re-releasing Avatar in China <laughs> this week and it needs to make another 7 million to become Siri, the biggest film of all time cynicism? again <laughs> yes they've been saying that all along ever since they yeah. overtook Avatar they're like I mean they're going to re-release it at some they're going to re-release so, yeah. it so and then uh, out comes Avengers Endgame again and so on <laughs> and so forth Yeah. why can't we all just get along honestly but uh, the Rooster Brothers they made the biggest film of all time a couple of years ago and then they left MCU they dropped the mic and off they went and now they've made Cherry 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 yes. Cherry 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 Cherry, uh, which is a adaptation of the book by Nico Walker and stars Tom Holland as the, well, I guess the title character. He's never actually kind named of. in the movie. Yeah. Um, who goes on something of an odyssey from from young buck to soldier to drug addicted bank robber. It's a heck of a journey. But is it a triumph? Jimbo. I will say there is a scene in this film where Tom Holland is lying on the floor of a jail cell, having recently shat himself. Uh, he's vomiting all over his clothes near the throes of quite heavy heroin withdrawal. And you can't help thinking that Spider-Man is very, very far from home in this film. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it's a very different vibe for him. It is, as you said, based on uh, Nico Walker's book, which he wrote in prison. He was an army veteran who did a stint for armed robbery. And uh, it's a semi-autobiographical story. So, and so it is that Tom Holland is playing the title character in this, the unnamed protagonist. In what I think it's fair to say is a generously runtime story. This is two and a half hours long, yeah. uh, but it does cover a lot of ground. Like so, it charts the course of his life from this sort of lovelorn college student pining after a girl called Emily, played by Kira Bravo, uh, to ill-advisedly signing up for the army after said girl breaks up with him, uh, doing a tour in Iraq, getting PTSD, coming home, developing a drug habit, and then turning to bank heists in order to fund it. And the whole thing is kind of broken into chapters, so each of these chapters of his life. And it kind of feels like a compilation of different movies to be honest like it goes from like a love film to a war film to like a train spotting light film to a heist movie and it's all shot with this really kind of 
odd dreamy quality which slightly comes and goes so holland regularly breaks the fourth wall in this and he's got this unreliable narration thing that surfaces in quite playful visual ways so like the fact that the name tag on his army uniform just says uh soldier and the guy who signs him up to be a soldier his says whomever as his name tag and then he robs a bank and it's got a big sign outside just called bank fucks america mm. so you know it, it i think there's a shitty you. bank as well at what point yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a whole bunch of, and one of them just says the bank like it's really peculiar and other than it's, I think it's length and that kind of weird fairy tale vibe. The other thing that kind of stuck out for me of this is that this is a serious fucking downer. So was Infinity War, in fairness. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. You are not wrong. Do you remember that scene where Thanos just shat his pants and, <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah, and vomits all over himself in the yeah. tail sand? Yeah, that's, that's why he was sitting on that space toilet. <laughs> <laughs> but like the guy, like he, he, you know, he has trauma and he spirals from PTSD into drug addiction, drags Emily down with him. And the whole thing is like this sort of swirling descent into misery. And, you know, albeit quite an awfully told one. This one's been given a bit of an old kick in by the re uh, reviewers in the States. Really I think has. that's a bit uncalled mm. for, to be honest. Like it feels a little bit like they're sticking in the boot post end game because it's not, I mean, it's not brilliant. Like, don't get me wrong, but it's bold, it's ambitious. I think it feels like the Russos are trying to cut loose and do something different. And I think also the same with Holland. I think he really pushes the boat out and uses this mm -hmm. to kind of showcase his range. I can't say I enjoyed the film. I don't think it's designed to be enjoyed in that way because uh, it made me thoroughly depressed. But um, but I, I didn't think it was terrible at all. I thought it was I thought it was decent. I would have given it three stars. And in fact, that's what we gave it. So, you know, yay. I want to stand up a bit for the reviewers here because I'm not known as somebody who wants to put the boot into the Russos after Endgame. Um, and I didn't like it very much at was all. It there were no portals in this film, Helen. I could have done with some portals. Portals would it have been really have helpful portals. in a number of scenes. But I think my, my issue with it, I mean, yes, the length, I thought it could have been more economically told. I'm not sure you needed anything before Iraq, actually. I think that could all have been a flashback, if even that. And I just felt it felt unfocused to me. It felt... Um, Did you think the butthole cam was one shot too many? The butthole cam was also unnecessary, but those kind of flourishes... Flourish. Felt really odd with <laughs> felt really <laughs> odd with the tone, and even the stuff you're talking about, like the bank names and those kind of little, kind of almost you know community level Arrested Development level touches, just were bizarre to me given the subject matter, and not in a way where, you know, because Train Spotting has a lot of comedy in it for yeah. a very serious film, so that can totally totally work. It just didn't work for me here. I thought that Tom Holland's performance was very good. I just, I didn't, the, the film didn't hang together for me at all. And yes, it's also incredibly depressing. So for me, it was like a two and a half hour, incredibly depressing, uneven, sometimes unnecessary film that I find very frustrating around a very good central performance that I couldn't get into because I was so frustrated with everything else. But so, in fairness, yeah. so was you, me and Dupree. <laughs> Cracking Rooster Brothers back catalogue guy just died there, but that's <laughs> that's fine. Does anyone remember you, me, and Dupree? Anyone yes. remember that Barely. film at all? Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, I didn't love it, but I admired what they were doing. And I admired that they were doing, you know, they'd just come off Endgame and they went, right, mm. what can we do that's the complete the fucking opposite of this movie <laughs> in every way, shape, or form? And they really leaned into that. And I'm, I'm, I'm totally here for calling it a noble failure. I just, you know, I think it's a failure. But yeah, I thought the movie was, you know, I think three stars is what we, we gave it. I think that's absolutely right. There's some really bold, audacious... I, I thought the Iraq war section, section in particular was really, really good. There's a mm -hmm. there's a bit towards the end where Jack Rayner comes into it and injects the film with a bit of vitality and a bit of danger and a bit of edge. And Tom Holland is tremendous in this. And again, 
you know, it's, it's, it's surprising that he hasn't been in the conversation, at least. I'm not saying he should have been nominated, but certainly he's given it his all. Um, perhaps they'll be on safer ground with the movie that they are shooting right now, which is The Grey Man, which is their big $200 million Netflix action spy epic with Chris Evans and Ryan Gosling. Very excited about that one. Um, but this one, I admire the swing for the fences, even if it doesn't always get there. Three stars then for Cherry. Cherry? Cherry. Three stars for Cherry. Three stars for the latest Rooster Brothers movie. <laughs> and we finish this week with Yes Day. Yes Day, which hits Netflix today. Jimbo, is Yes Day going to be a Yes Day or a No Day for everybody? No Day. <laughs> Next. Oh um, my God. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. And that was the review. No. Uh, so this is, if anyone has ever read the children's book, there's a children's book called Yes Day, came out in 2009, written by Tom Lichtenheld and Amy Krause. And it's, it's aimed at very young kids. It's like a picture book. And the idea is that for 24 hours, there is a kind of parental amnesty where whenever an annoying child asks a question, you have to say yes. You know, can I eat the cat? Can I drink sugar? All of these things you just have to say yes to. It's what? like the purge for children, essentially, is what it is. <laughs> and... Um, this is a genuine thing. So this book came out in 2009 and it has been adopted by a lot of people. Famously, Jennifer Garner being one of them. So she, she, I think, put up an Instagram post in about 2017. It was her without makeup on, having woken up in a tent in her garden at the end of one of the annual yes days. It's an annual tradition in her household. She's been doing this every year since 2012 with her kids. And presumably, <laughs> presumably it was on one of these days that she was actually asked if she wanted to make this film for Netflix. And she said yes. Uh, but uh, this, the problem with this is, so it, it kind of, the, the book has no plot clearly it's just based on that premise but this spins out so she plays Alison Torres and her husband who's played by Edgar Ramirez uh, they were yes parents before they were parents they were yes people you know do you want to go skydiving do you want to go you know should we skip work and jump in a pond do whatever they would say yes to it then they had kids and of course found out as everyone does that when you are a parent uh, no becomes a very important weapon in your arsenal so having been accused of being massive fun sponges by their children they agree to one of these purge type yes days for their kids so for 24 hours, they have to do everything their kids ask. And there's a kind of subplot where she has a bet with her eldest daughter that if she says no, even once, the eldest daughter is allowed to go to a gig on her own at 14 years old. So uh, so that's kind of, there's there, there's your threat. That raises the stakes just a little bit. So this is a, it's directed by Miguel Arteta, who did Cedar Rapids, among other things. Um, and my issue with it is, like, so the idea, like there's there's definitely some some humour to be had with the idea. And they do all kinds of shit. Like there's, uh, there's like this paramilitary, water balloon type capture the flag thing there's a trip to six flags there's a fight over a pink gorilla there's you know competitive ice cream eating there's a lot of stuff going on but it's just not funny and this isn't mm. just me saying that it's not funny the problem with this is they've not gone for yeah let's see if we can mine this for humor with great gags and a sort of zippy script they've just thought this is an inherently sort of broad entertaining concept and i think the problem is they have pitched this I think roughly speaking at the same audience as the book. So it goes, it skews quite young. Like this is a very wholesome family film. Uh, so it is just, you know, there's, there are no surprises here. There's no smart dialogue and it involves a, the most sedate, unexciting gig in live music history. And and I think the biggest problem here is like Yes Days as a concept, there is fucking nothing in this for parents at all whatsoever on any level. I mean, so, there's Edgar Ramirez, so, you Okay, know. there's that. But other than that, <laughs> there's not much here. 
I'm going to a little bit defend it. I I broadly agree with you, but I do think they at least tried to do some things. They tried to look at the gender balance of who gets to be the mean parent and who gets to be the nice parent, which is the case in a lot of relationships where daddy says yes because he's not paying attention at the time and mummy has to be the one to say no. So it's got they, a well-worn trope, that, isn't it? It is the a well-worn trope, but it's the yes dad that, and the no mum thing. Yeah, but that's the one that's still happening and we're seeing, we're seeing that very much in the pandemic at the moment. Uh, and I thought, I thought, the, the chance for her, if it had focused a little bit more on her chance to kind of reclaim a lost part of herself, I think that that might have been stronger. And also on the absolute devastation she feels when confronted with how her children see her, which happens yes, early on in the film. When they compare her to Stalin. When they compare her to Stalin and Mussolini. <laughs> and like her t- the, her children's teachers bring her in and show her this. <laughs> so you're is, a terrible parent. <laughs> that is devastating. And if they had actually leaned on that and shown yeah. that, then I think the whole film would work better. Because I think what they're missing here is really the emotion. I mean, the family setup is not a million miles from Instant Family, for example, Chris, which I know you're a big fan of. Mm. And and yet it doesn't work as well. The, the whole setup of the film, including the casting of, of Jennifer Garner, is not a million miles from Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, which I might just have gotten wrong. But that works a huge amount better because it also has real kind of pathos and real kind of emotion. And I think that's sort of what's missing here. There are moments of it scattered throughout, but there isn't a consistent kind of emotional arc in the way that you mm. need for the best family films like this. And of course, who directed that movie? Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day? Mm-hmm. I don't remember. Miguel Arteta. <gasps> so they've reunited on this one. But Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day is at least 81 minutes long. Does this have a short running time in its yes, favour? Yes, it does. Thank God. Like it's, <laughs> it's about, it's 89 minutes, including credits. So it's, yeah, it's mercifully short. And that's the most positive thing I can say about it. So that's like, you could watch it twice in the time it yeah, takes Tom shouldn't. Holland you to shoot really, I can't emphasise enough how much you shouldn't. Okay. All right. I feel Sounds like if me. you have a really young child who's not particularly discerning in what they watch and you're not going to sit <laughs> with them and you're the going to let them watch it children. unattended, then sure, go for it. But if you're actually going to watch it with them, please put on something else. This concept of yes days sounds absolutely terrifying. It it's really people does. People do this. This is an actual thing. I can't, I can't get my head around that at all. So if you have a yes day and your kid says, let's watch yes day on Netflix, say no fucking <laughs> yeah, way. No, no fucking way. Yeah. Two st- yeah, let's have a no fucking way day, shall we? <laughs> and two stars for yes day. And on that bombshell, on that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun, where we'll be joined by Liam Neeson and his son, Michael Richardson, and his son, Adrian Dunbar. (laughs) Hear my song! Uh, Liam Neeson and Adrian Dunbar. No, Liam Neeson and Michael Richardson, his son, as they talk about their new movie, Made in Italy, in which they play father and son. We'll also be joined by Doug Lyman, the director of Locked Down. All very exciting oh, stuff. Oh, so it's his fault. It's his fault. I well, knew it. but the whole lockdown thing. Yeah. Yeah. Him and Stephen Knight. Ooh, Lyman. Oh, you. I knew it. I knew it. Uh, anyway, until we meet again, until then, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from Squadcast name, Mr. Holland's Opus Helen O'Hara. To Lou. It is goodbye from Ted, like the battle, Hastings. You can't bring TV names into a film <laughs> podcast, Jimbo. Now we're sucking diesel. Good Lord. Is that where you live your life a quarter of an inch at a time? Please stop. <laughs>
And it's goodbye from me, squadcast name, simply Arg. There were some technical <laughs> difficulties. Uh, I'm off to recast Jimbo for next week's show. I'm going to replace him with Jimmy Smits. A welcome upgrade all round. I think you'll agree. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.